welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today, instead of just talking about a couple different movies and reviewing them, we're going to be talking about various awards for the year 2018. Some real, some not real. I'm going to be joined by a lot of the same friends that uh, joined me on the podcast where we all talked about our top 10 movies of the year, and going to talk about the real Academy Awards and where we think that who we want to win in the categories in the context of the actual nominees, but also if we think there's someone that needs to get recognized that didn't actually get recognized, I'm going to talk about some fake awards too, but I'm happy to be joined by my friend Fred Cobb to uh, talk about the Best Supporting Actress category to start things off, which is kind of funny that this is what you suggested, Fred, because this is actually kind of how the Oscars start off. You know, They start off giving with, this, with the Supporting Actor and Actress categories, and they go into all the tech stuff before like finishing with the big stuff so uh we're starting here and the nominee the actual nominees are uh regina king for appeal street could talk rachel vice for the favorite emma stone for the favorite amy adams for playing lynn cheney in vice and the big shocker that no one really had predicted going into oscar nomination morning was marina de tavira so fred i think i'm going to first start and, and just talk about those actual nominees before if there's anyone else who wanted to shout out but uh when you first like woke up on oscar morning and saw these nominees was there one that you were like especially hoping to see that you were glad was there and who do you hope comes out on top so this was an incredibly predictable category, actually, until Oscar morning. Right. Uh, I feel like everybody had uh, had the five already picked out. And, of course, uh, Marina de Tavira ended up replacing Claire Foy for First Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the fifth one everybody kind of expected in there. So in all honesty, I didn't necessarily think Claire Foy should have won the award. But I would have definitely liked to see her in there, especially because First Man was a pretty good movie that I really liked, that I thought got unfairly shut out from a lot of the big categories. Right. But the question I really have for you and why I wanted to discuss the category is that a lot of people are accusing uh, the studio behind the favorite of category fraud a little bit. Right. Because Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone, categorizing them as supporting actresses in that film is a little bit of a stretch uh, for all intents and purposes. So I'm kind of curious how you think... Um, studios should well, it, i guess pick the categories that they want their performers to compete in well um, i mean like i think you should do it in like as good faith a way as possible you know what was most ridiculous was we talked about leave no trace and we talked about your top 10 movies of the year uh whatever studio put that one out tried to campaign thomas and mckenzie as a uh, supporting actress when she is literally in just about every single scene and ben foster disappears for like big chunks of that movie and we're with her like if a movie is like someone's story uh it's that character's story through and through like they should be the lead and if and it's just hard to talk it's hard to figure it out with ensemble pictures like the favorite and if you put a gun to my head i would say emma stone's almost the lead of that movie she does have the most screen time and it's uh, largely about her like fighting to ascend but i mean you could say the movie also has three leads. I would almost say, though, if you're going to make one of them supporting, then it would be Rachel Weisz. I mean, she does go away for a chunk of the movie at the end, um, whereas uh, Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman are a little more consistently in it, even if there are different combinations where the t- any two of the three are sharing the screen throughout the movie. So, I, But none of them – the movie's two hours long, and none of them have more than an hour of screen time. So, I mean, some people might argue, oh, all of them should be supporting, all of them are leads, you can, maybe you can splice it one way or another. But if you were just saying, like, hey, this is not in good faith putting more than one of these women in lead, I would have put Rachel Weisz there, not Emma Stone. Um, even if, like, and everyone has their own favorite, no pun intended, of those three performances uh-huh. of the movie. My personal favorite, though, is probably Emma Stone, just because I think it's, like, a big flex on her part to, like, 
do this movie and really knock it out of the park because like she gets criticized a lot for being kind of like a um just like a theater kid who's like too like eager to do um really exciting crazy things and is maybe a little too hyperactive or i don't know maniac maniac yeah i didn't watch maniac but like i think that, that that's like a some kind of criticism people might have of her personally i don't necessarily think it's fair but in spite of the fact that she does get those kind of criticisms that uh, of her that, that she's like you know what i'm gonna go do like an english costume drama and do a british accent and pulls it off i was just like super impressed by that that being said i'd probably still vote for regina king but, I mean, I really love The Favorite. I think it was my number 11 movie of the year. I mean, we talked okay. about top 10s, and I'm probably going to end up talking about it on some of the other podcasts. Or, no, it was my number 12. So I know other people are going to have it in their top 10. But, like, I don't know. Did you have, like, a strong reaction, like, yourself to that accusations of category fraud? Is there one of those that you thought, like, more clearly belonged in this category? Not really a strong reaction. I didn't necessarily think Olivia Colman is the lead actress in that movie, though, because mm-hmm. I feel like Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone's characters compete for her attention during the entire movie. So they're really the ones with agency. Mm-hmm. And Queen Anne, she's just kind of the person who isn't really able to... I mean, of course she's the queen, right? But they're the two that are really the driving forces in that film. So I'm a little surprised that everybody seems to agree that Olivia Coleman really is the face of the franchise, so to speak. Yeah, um, it's tough. Um, did, did, did you have a personal favorite from that movie? Rachel Weiss, actually. Okay. I yeah, think. a lot of people um, did like her the most. Yeah, just because I think it was a fairly um, almost understated nasty performance as opposed to Emma Stone's, which was a little bit more aggressive. And mm-hmm. um, Rachel Weiss is somebody who I think a lot of people don't really have her on their radars that much. She did win the Oscar for The Constant Gardener back in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's definitely not really... Um, a household name whatsoever so it's always nice to see her come out of the woodwork all of a sudden and give a performance like this um but i highly doubt either one of them will win because it's very likely they'll cannibalize each other's votes yeah rachel weiss earlier this year was the lead in a movie that was uh one of my one i really enjoyed called disobedience and uh hmm. about orthodox and an orthodox jewish uh community specifically that she comes back into after having left several years before. And it, it turns out it might've been because she had a lesbian relationship with another woman played by Rachel McAdams. And it's kind of like how they kind of circle each other as she comes back into the community. So I, that plus, uh, she did a movie called denial where she played, a um, someone that fought back against the denier or the Holocaust who was played by Timothy Spall. That came, that movie came out a couple of years ago. Um, so she's done a few things in the last year that have put her back on my radar, but I thought like they were all great. Um, I just personally think I would vote for Regina King cause I like, a very soft spot for her for other stuff she's done in the past and i i mean i i just think that like i mean every like everyone in bill street like gave great performances but i just i mean i think she's really great in that scene with pedro pascal and oh yeah uh, really really good in the scene where um she the, the, the one in the scene where like all the all the families are kind of like going back and forth at each other and how she stands out there just like interacting with tish as she gets the news about her pregnancy and it's very empathetic but also like very serious when she needs to be and really is able to show off everything in a movie that's a large ensemble but she really uh manages to stand out in her own way so that's probably where my vote would go out of these five uh do you have you said yours you said rachel vice is your favorite from the favorite but like do you have a favorite of these five i think i'd probably give it to her okay um, cool i really wish I would have liked Vice better, and I could, in good conscience, uh, say Amy Adams is my favorite. 
because I think she's overdue, and I really like her as an actress. Yeah, you she was were, so great just, in Sharp Objects. If she were to somehow but, win, it'd be like another one of those instances of someone. She's been nominated five times before this of like someone yeah. winning for something that's like not their best, which would be frustrating. Uh, yeah. It's like now she's just piling up the nominations. She's up to six. At some point, it's going to happen for her. I do just feel really weird if it happened for this performance as Lynn Cheney, which isn't yeah. bad, but like I don't think it, it it's not on the level of some of these others. And Vice isn't on the level of like the other movies that these nominees come from, in my opinion. Um, yeah, should be. Do you have any other uh, actresses who you'd like to recognize that gave other performances this year that you thought in a different world could have ended up in this in these in these top five? Yeah, so the two that I really do want to highlight, uh, one of them is Elizabeth Debitsky that, in Widows. That was on my list too. Oh wow! Okay, so I know that you liked Widows uh, overall a lot more than I did. I still mm-hmm. thought it was a very solid action movie, um, but I just thought her performance was riveting uh, yeah. by far i think the most um i mean Vi- viola davis viola davis is fun in that movie but she's doing one thing the whole movie and doing it very well whereas <laughs> elizabeth debicki has to play uh the scenes where she is kind of forced to be sexually submissive with the uh lucas haas character that is kind of using her as a prostitute and yeah. that's very uncomfortable and it's bordering on uh emotionally abusive in some ways and then she uh has to go and she is really fun in like the scenes where she gets to go to a gun show and walk out of a gun show carrying some guns and like a corn dog or whatever it is uh or like whatever it is that she's eating when she leaves that thing and it's just like one of the more funny shots of the whole year so when she has to like almost seduce the um gun nut mom into helping her out with that like it's uh she she gets to do so many she gets to do so many different things in that movie and is like it's just cool because like she had to see her get that kind of showcase because she was she was fun in other stuff she's done like uh like the guardians movies or like one of the few redeeming parts of cloverfield paradox um which i mean so it was cool to see her like finally like find a movie that like matched her talents i thought so uh who else did you have on your list michelle yo from Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, some people thought that might have turned into a Oscar nomination. Didn't quite happen, but uh, had some definitely had some cool moments. That Mahjong scene is really intense when she has to mm-hmm. do that at the end of the movie um, with Rachel. But uh, yeah, I mean, she really brings the kind of aura you would want from the matriarch of that family, or almost matriarch, because she has some inter- one of the better scenes in that movie is what she has to interact with her mother-in-law. So, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, my, the other ones on my list were Rachel McAdams, as I already mentioned, for Disobedience. Uh, just, okay. I mean, she, she's having to play someone British in there. I'm ta- I guess I just really appreciated people going from Americans playing Brits this year. Uh, <laughs> not only that, but like to give a very restrained performance as she has to do in that, as it calls for when, unfortunately, that's the way women are kind of uh, expected to act in the Orthodox Jewish community. She pulls it off very well. Uh, Anne Hathaway was just super fun in Ocean's 8. I mean – uh, everything I could have wanted from someone playing that type of actress, and she totally owns it. Blake Lively from A Simple Favor, very similar, kind of a scenery-chewing type of role as Anne Hathaway had in Ocean's 8, but just kind of is just there to uh, just really be something, a force of nature for Anna Kendrick to look at. And also Haley Ru- Ru- Haley Rue Richardson for Support the Girls. I don't know if that's one you checked out. Uh, it's. I think it's on Hulu or Amazon Prime now maybe. Um, you know, Do you know what it's about? Have you heard about it? I have not actually, but yeah, tell so me. Support the Girls is like about – it's by this guy, Andrew Bujalski, who is one of the pioneers in the mumblecore movement. But he's – last couple of movies, one called Results that I think is might still be on Netflix, uh, about a gym in Austin, Texas, and the people that work in it. Support the Girls is about uh, – 
we uh, kind of like a Hooters type restaurant knockoff in uh, in a Texas suburb. And the woman that worked there on a long day, Regina Hall, plays like the main manager of the restaurant. But Haley Richardson, who people might know from uh, Split or Edge of Seventeen or Columbus, uh, she plays one of the waitresses there and is just like kind of the perky fun one. But I think there is uh, other stuff about her that becomes apparent that's, hey, maybe she has a little more going on than what meets the surface where she's kind of playing the the perky dits. And it's a really cool performance. And she's a very exciting actress because it's like totally different from what she did in Columbus. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty deep year of um, best actress, uh, best supporting actress hopefuls, I would say, but maybe not the deepest. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just kind of looking at like some list of performances and why well, I would have been fine with any of those getting nominated. Like the other ones that almost got nominated, like, I mean, I wasn't like totally angry that they weren't there. Like there was, uh, cause Thomas and McKenzie shouldn't have been in that category in the first place. Nicole Kidman, just because she's no, Nicole Kidman was up there for boy race, but it wouldn't have really felt like uh-huh. one of the, her better ones. And, um, Emily Blunt could have gotten in for a quiet place. I would have been happy with that. Didn't happen. Yeah, didn't she win the SAG award actually for that performance? Yes. So very odd oh. how that happened. And, uh, but yeah, that's pretty much, uh, that, that, that's that category. So Fred, I appreciate you breaking that down with me. I mean, it'd be interesting if Regina King becomes an Oscar nominee or an Oscar winner on, on Oscar night. So, uh, thanks for that. And, uh, stay tuned for the next category. <laughs> All right, and now I am joined by Hannah Couture. We're going to deviate from the traditional Oscar categories for a minute because, I mean, there are plenty of places on the internet you can hear talk about that. There are various uh, fake categories I like to talk about every year when I do awards podcasts, and my favorite of those to do is best scene because, I, well, for one, Hannah, I think this is like one like with a few parameters like the Oscars could easily do, but the Oscars are uh, kind of obsessed with like really screwing with everything they do right uh, at the moment. And before we actually get into it, that is one thing I meant to, I, w- I wanted to ask you about, because you are someone that is of the strong opinion that award shows should not have host. So I think, when, I mean, not that you were, were happy that with the whole Kevin Hart fiasco, because I mean, it shone light on some pretty uh, problematic beliefs. But at the same time, uh, if the consequence of that was not having an Oscar host, you were going to be okay with that consequence. But uh, since then, like the, a bunch of other stuff has come out about the Oscars, whether it be them not televised, oh not televising all the awards, uh, then trying to kick off all the actors that were that won their awards last year and not let them present since they aren't the most famous and they were going to do other people. They got shamed into walking that one back, not letting all the songs perform, but they got shamed by Lady Gaga into having let all the songs, songs perform because she said, I'm not going to do Shallow if you don't do that. Goodbye, her. And so they've really just been screwing with everything. Uh, do you have a take right now on the state of the Oscars? And uh, is your happiness about not having to watch a host uh, outweighed by all the other terrible things they're doing to shoot yeah, themselves in the foot? It's tempered a little bit by then all of the <laughs> increasingly dumb decisions they've made. Yeah, I mean, so my take on this seems to be that the people in charge of the Oscars telecast do not understand why people watch the Oscars or what they like about the You mean the like you don't watch the Oscars to watch montages about why movies are so great? I don't even mind those. You can oh, leave them in okay. and just let it be four or five hours long or whatever. You know, people who are going to watch the Oscars are going to watch them. And people who aren't interested aren't going to be interested just because you have a more famous person as a presenter. I don't, and, yeah. I, and I don't think someone chooses to not watch in the first place because it's really long. You can like no. DVR and watch what you want or 
or, or they're going to watch because like, hey, I'm going to get to see people from the movies I like do it. So, I mean, it was such a smart thing when Cheryl Boone Isaacs diversified it and that allowed a different type of voter to come in that would be more willing to vote for something like a Black Panther or a uh, Get Out or even, I mean, A Star is Born and probably win Oscars anyway, but just you were more likely to get like some big movies in there just by having some non-old white people uh, voting for the awards. And, you, you know, like why didn't you just like leave everything else as it is and just see what your ratings turned into when you had three movies that made a combined like 1.7 billion dollars that were up for the awards you know well and my thing about the host is that i've always been of the opinion that award shows do not need hosts um unless they're the tonys in which case i'll make an exception for an opening number and i always love the sag awards because they didn't have a host and they just got in and out but now they have a host and they're worse oh god and i love megan mullally but that was not the best look for her well and my thing is they seem the academy seems so obsessed with not making the oscar ceremony run long so it's like, okay, well, one, you can cut the montages. And two, if you don't have a host, you get rid of all of – you don't have an opening monologue. You don't have all those dumb bits that take up time that nobody enjoys. You don't want to see a people get their movie viewing experience interrupted and then walk through the Oscars like a, parade, so of, like a parade of animals? I don't need to see pizza being delivered to the audience. Like I will gladly trade any of that nonsense for the opportunity to see a cinematographer win an award. Yeah, or, I, I, I like, got, I've gotten really into seeing like the best shorts the last few years. Like they've gotten yeah. a lot better at putting those out in theaters. And like those are filmmakers that have like probably worked their ass off just to even get that short made in the first place. And now it's like, hey, you're not important enough to actually be put on TV. Sorry. It's like, what the right, hell? It's a big opportunity for the many people who are Oscar nominees but who are not super famous, and this is a big chance for people to learn about their work maybe for the first time, and the Oscars are just not interested in that, which I think is insulting to the nominees and also insulting to the audience so that they think we're going to be bored because it's not about a incredibly famous movie star for five minutes. And again, like – I, I, I maybe almost see their point if it was like 1990, but like people like, don't get turned off by long TV shows. We are like, no. we are creatures with like attention spans of like five seconds, but that doesn't mean that we have to change a channel because the thing we're watching is long. It means we look at our phone and we look at Twitter and we do stuff like that to keep ourselves occupied. And then we look up when something interesting happens. You know, I, I, I just, I just don't understand where this calculus is coming from. And it's like very frustrating. But yeah, so because they're going to take out all of the awards that we enjoy seeing, we can fill in the gaps here and talk <laughs> about some other fake awards that uh, are more entertaining than like some of the stuff we're going to have to watch on February 24th. Oh, I don't know if I told you this, or I might you might have seen me tweet about it, but I actually booked a flight at the same time as the Oscars. Oh, I did uh, see you tweet about yeah, this. Yeah, and like of all people to book a flight at the same time as the Oscars, me, the person that listens to like three different podcasts dedicated to awards and saw 130 movies last year, I did that with – I booked this flight without even thinking about it. This was before like the nom- Nominations weren't really that good, and all this other stuff came out about how they were screwing with the awards. And now I'm like really totally fine with it. It's just kind of funny that like I was so crestfallen for like two hours <laughs> when I came to like wait the Oscars are in February because like like February 24th sounds a little early. Like they've been like February 28th before, like first week in March, and I just well, they were late last year because of the Olympics. Yeah, and I just did not even consider that when I booked my plane ticket uh, to come back from Philadelphia to visit my grandpa, and I and I was just so mad, and now I'm just like I'm so chill about it. Like I just don't even care. It's just such a weird 180 that I had to do since I made what would seem like a ginormous mistake. Like this is the year I've I've seen more foreign films than ever. I'm gonna see the shorts. I've seen actually I did last year I saw all the performances and I don't even know if I'm gonna see Out Eternity's Gate. So I haven't seen William Defoe. 
might have to like rent that movie this weekend or something. I'm not really looking forward to it. But anyway, uh, best scene. I, I already have like a decent sized list of this, so I'm just going to uh, throw it to you first because I'm sure I might have a couple of the ones already written down that you were going to talk about because I already cut you off like three times on our last <laughs> podcast to, okay. to try and save some content for this one. But uh, did you have a what, – what were when I told you – when I offered this to you as a category, was there one that like even if it wasn't what you ultimately decided on one is your favorite, was, was there one that like first came to mind for you? Well, the one that – first came to mind to me was first reformed, which we talked about a little bit earlier in my top 10, but I will just say that, that, that scene of that first scene of Ethan Hawke talking to, uh, Michael, the Amanda Seyfried's character's husband about why he is struggling so much with the state of the world is the movie scene from this year that has stuck with me the most for sure. And it's, it's kind of long, but I rewatched just that part again the other night and it's still, it's riveting, even though it's like eight minutes of just two people talking, mostly one guy sort of monologuing. Had you ever seen that actor before? I guess his name is Philip Edinger. I don't think so. I, I looked at his IMDb and I don't think there was anything that like jumped out at me that like, oh, I recognize him from that. And I, and I agree with everything uh, you said in that scene. What's funny is like, actually, I don't know, I don't remember what his role was in the movie, but I'm just like looking at his uh, list of films on Letterboxd right now. And it looks like he was in Indignation. And, oh, I which, saw that. Which, yeah, which had like, a, a, in a way, a very similar scene with just like a- It does, a, yeah. A, that was one of the best scenes of 2016, in my opinion, with uh, Logan Lerman and Tracy Letts just going at it for like 21 minutes. And this is- kind of similar in that regard i don't know i have no idea what philip edinger was in that movie but like i just think it's kind of cool that like to see to one be wowed by a scene at that moment but at the same time being like man who is this guy who's just like holding his own against ethan hawk who is like obviously a, a pretty great an actor with a great track record that we have a long relationship with so yeah no i i'm totally with you on that and it was just like a again we we, we discussed on the top 10 podcast but just to like really in such an intense way throw you th- throw you into this whole thing about questioning like what's going on on our planet whether it's irresponsible to bring life into the world it's like man like th- yeah it totally like left a lasting impression on me also uh what was your next one um the next one i have is just kind of a short scene it's almost more a line than a scene but it's the last scene between melissa mccarthy and richard e grant and can you ever forgive me ah, when he okay. comes to meet her at the bar the last time when she is supposed she's you know been arrested and is not actually supposed to be at this bar but has snuck <laughs> away and then it's it's revealed that um, he is dying of AIDS and this is maybe the last time they're going to see each other. And um, it's just this it's like it's sweet, but they're also you get so much of how they've always been with each other. Like they're sort of mean to each other, but it's also very clearly them expressing love for each other, even though they would never say it in that right, way. Right. And she has this moment when he gets up to leave and she starts laughing and he says, what what's that about? And she sort of says, like, for a second there, I had the strongest urge to trip you. <laughs> and it's just such, it's, it's a, such a nice and sad moment that like says so much about their characters and how their relationship has developed and changed over the course of the movie. And just her delivery of that line is so good. Cause she sort of laughs as she says it. It's so good. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll give a couple of mine too, before I throw it back to you and then see if you have anything else. So, uh, first one that comes to mind for me is the tracking shot in widows, uh, with, the oh, uh, when they, when he leaves, when Colin Farrell leaves the campaign event with his, uh, advisor slash lover, I guess. And, uh, you don't, I, you know, I saw the movie a couple of times and like, I, I mean, the first time I didn't really know what I was watching at first. It is like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, why is the camera set up like this on the, like the front, front of the car and like kind of has the car half in the frame. And I mean, 
it was very interesting, like hearing him complain and her put him in his place. And you're like, all right, well, I like this dialogue, but what's going on? And then all of a sudden, the whole entire film like clicks into place for me when you see how short, mm-hmm. that, short that drive is. It's like, oh my god, like they they totally just pulled that off, and they should they had this scene that further develops the character with what's being said, but at the same time with watching how Chicago is geographically laid out, making you watch that, it makes a whole entire statement about that city, its politics, its class. It, it accomplishes so much in um, in just such a efficient way. And, you know, like I said, that movie has to do so many things, and it could have, I mean, I feel like many movies to be able to accomplish what Widow, Widows does would have to be three hours long. And it's for, like, really smart scenes like that where Steve McQueen, a Brit, like, really somehow knows that city so well. And that mm-hmm. was pretty cool. That's such a, it's such a simple way to show that, but it's so smart. Like that's a, that's a great, that's a great shot. That yeah. Uh, another one I wanted to shout out was another uh, tracking shot, which is the, the water rescue scene in Roma. Uh, oh, that's a good one too. Which I mean, uh, talk about another thing that makes the movie, like, I mean, maybe it just means I wasn't understanding these movies well enough up until these uh, iconic scenes, but I was like, uh, first of all, I was like amazed. I was talking to my friend Elijah who did the Roma podcast with me and I was like, he, and he's actually kind of like a, a, a budding filmmaker in his own right and knows a lot more about just filmmaking techniques than I did and stuff. But I was like, man, like lot, you see a lot of scenes in movies that like take place in water, but like. I feel like most scenes I can think of where it's like someone in the water for whatever reason jumping, getting pushed off a boat or a surfing movie or something like it feels like it's a shaky cam thing where it's going under under the sea level above the sea level over and over again. And this was completely steady the whole entire time as it is following uh, uh, Cleo into the water as she's trying to rescue the kids even and I think it's so smart that they were able to do that because it gives you a real sense of like where the kids are when you actually see their heads pop up. And I feel like if it was a traditional shaky cam thing, you wouldn't actually have an idea of if she was going to save them. And it, but at the same time, it's able to be so steady because he said that they probably had to actually build a dock and just put a dolly on a dock to pull that off, which is really cool. And, but then once she actually rescues them and all of a sudden breaks down afterward and admits that she didn't want the baby to be born. I mean, that made the entire movie like make more sense for me. Cause I didn't think she was upset enough when the baby was still, born and i didn't understand why and at the same time you realize that she's been watching this other marriage like fall apart and how hard it is for a woman of like great means to take care of kids it's even a huge challenge for her with the help that she has and she probably like looked at it and was like man i'm not ready for this and i mean just seeing her actually kind of have that emotional release was like really satisfying at the end of what was very a scary scary scene because i mean you've already watched a, a stillborn baby her give birth to a stillborn baby so there's no guarantee that everyone's making out of that scene alive so it's like very uh suspenseful for those reasons as well i don't know if you had any other thoughts on that one but uh no just that that's a good scene i agree i think um Yulitza aparicio is really good in that movie i'm glad she got an oscar nomination yeah and so is marina de Tavirna, who that was like probably the biggest surprise on oscar morning out, out of yeah. or one of the biggest ones i had really hadn't heard anyone predicting her but i mean i was perfectly happy with that uh did you have did you have any others you want to throw out there um, just, I mean, on a lighter note, I love the scene in Into the Spider-Verse where they, uh, meet all of the various spider people meet for the first time in Aunt May's little shed and they all, you know, you get, a uh, Penny Parker and Spider-Ham and Spider-Man Noir. Like I laughed so much at, uh, Spider-Man Noir, especially he's like, sometimes I light matches and let them burn just, just, just to feel, feel something. something like, or, uh, what's the other thing um, about, uh, being 
crushed by the um, moral depravity of your action or something like that. God, <laughs> yeah. now, I'm drawing a blank on that quote now, but I need to go back and look it up because I might do a separate uh, segment on like best lines from the year and like for, for comedy's sake, that's totally one of them. I, I don't think I'm going to like do a best shot of the year kind of podcast because that's something I think is better served by uh, film writers that know more than me, but also just uh, writing about it, but also just having a visual to look at uh, and we don't really have that. But I will say like one of my favorite scenes in that movie also is just the first time you see him jump from a building in the new suit mm-hmm. and it and that's a really good musical cue too i don't even remember the song because i'm just not that well versed in hip-hop but it's really really cool to see him like diving hip first with whatever song that is they drop in there in the new suit that you're seeing for the first time uh, right after you've seen it but then you see oh wait he's turned it black like very cool moment a couple other scenes uh i'll throw out there uh i again at the i really interrupted you when you were talking about beale street because your favorite movie of the year but i i I wrote down two scenes from that movie one the brian tyree henry scene uh what did you think about that scene because it's certainly like very very unique and just the way that movie comes to a screeching halt just become the brian tyree henry show Mm -hmm. well i mean he's great in it obviously but it's it serves the purpose of like you've just met this character and he's just been around for a couple minutes in this scene, um, having dinner with the main characters, but you get without him even saying a too much, like he says a lot, but it's sort of a lot is implied in the way he talks about prison and how much he has been destroyed by the experience of being in prison. And that tells you a lot about his character. And it also sets up what is at stake for Fani if he ends up going to prison. And so it tells you just a lot about the world that these characters are living in while also just being a really great performance from Brian Tyree Henry. Yeah. Barry Jenkins did an interview with uh, Sean Fennessy of the ringer. So I don't, I, I can't really put it into words better than he did, but like he talked about that scene and how it was just like kind of an example of how like maybe black men would meet in that time and how like they would act like everything was really good at first, but then if they start talking for mm-hmm. longer, like based on the challenges that they're, um, that African-Americans would be facing at the time, like it slowly becomes relevant, uh, apparent that not everything is okay, but it takes a while to get to that point. But yeah, I mean like that would have been like a really cool Oscar nomination if that had happened for someone like Brian Tyree Henry. Cause that's like a, a true supporting performance. Someone that can just come in mm-hmm. and make such a massive impression, like so quickly in a movie. I mean, I think it was pretty divisive, but I was curious to get your take since it was your favorite of movie of the year. How did you feel? about the Dave Franco scene? I thought it was fine. I think it, it, he's maybe one of the weaker elements. Um, and that, that scene is maybe a little more obvious than the rest of the movie, but I wasn't really bothered by his presence. It is kind of weird to just though all of a sudden Dave Franco's in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I really like Dave Franco, but I mean, so I was happy like for him that he got that opportunity. Uh, I, from one of my, my friend Ben, who's on the podcast a couple of times was like a Q and a with him. And, uh, he said that like when he, when his agent told him Barry Jenkins was interested in him for a movie, he was like, I will do it. I don't care if I'm a background actor, I will do it, which made me really mm-hmm. like Dave Franco. Uh, but I mean, I, I, I really liked it a lot. And like, I put it on my personal list of favorite scenes just because I thought it was really cool that again, you, because of the way this movie isn't told completely chronologically, you already know what, what, what's coming for funny. And mm-hmm. here's this, uh, white guy that is like doing a great thing for them. And I thought that, like, but at the same time, you know that it's really not going to make a big difference. Like, and I thought it, in a way, to me, even if, like, I, and I said this on my podcast about it already, but I'm repeating myself. I might be giving Barry Jenkins, like, I'm putting words in his mouth or uh, saying an idea that wasn't even something he thought about. But to me, it was, like, kind of symbolic of the fact that you take that and, like, the Finn Wintrock character, like, 
you can have like individual white people that mean well and do nice things for black people, but like that's not really going to mean anything in the aggregate because there are such larger forces working against right. that, and you're already aware of that larger force, which is this corrupt criminal justice system that's working against Bonnie. So it's like here's a guy that's being genuinely good and might be like the best you can expect a white person to be in those times, but at the same time, it's really not going to matter because there aren't like there are way more people that aren't like that than there are. And I also like the one thing about his acting that I did like was I liked how befuddled and speechless he was when they asked him why he was doing this like he really seemed at a loss and like some smooth talker that was like maybe trying to put on a show or like just wanted to like say do do a thing so he could really just feel better about himself might have just been like said something like really tone deaf like you know i'm just like I'm just there for black people or said something right. like that, something but too, he was just like, try it, hard. it's very cheesy to say, you know, I'm just my mother's kid, but like he struggled with what to say before that. And I like that piece of acting. Yeah. Uh, I, those are like the main like scenes that I really, we've talked about now the main ones that I really had on my list. I have a couple others. Were there any uh, others that jumped out for you though? Um, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I mentioned in, on my top 10, the, uh, Mission Impossible fight scene in the oh, bathroom. bathroom. Yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, that's what that might be the best action scene I've seen in the, like the last five years. I loved it. I've rewatched just that scene a couple times. <laughs> um, so uh, you weren't you, you didn't find it too ridiculous that Henry Cavill needed to load up his punches. I mean, well, that's the thing is that by the time you, I actually got around to seeing the movie, you already knew about I'd, it. Seen, I'd seen that trailer a zillion times, oh, okay. and it, you see just that gif, you know, and it'd become like him, like loading his arms, had become almost a meme. I was honestly expecting <laughs> the Fallout trailer to be like your number three of the year. <laughs> I loved Fallout trailer. <laughs> uh, no, that's a great one. A couple other things I had, uh, pretty obvious, but like I mean, uh, and basic, but I mean, I totally think uh the shallow scene from a star is born deserves to be yep. there like it's super well done it's pretty crazy that's pulled off by a first-time director uh and i'm not being original to say this at all but it's like a really nice touch that uh in that scene like jackson like makes it about ally and is like very generous and uh and he is throughout the movie and that's one of the things i like about it a lot is that he's like there to um really kind of push her forward and Obviously, like part of the conflict comes in when he does get a little jealous and stuff like that. But I like how that scene is handled, and it's obviously very chilling, even leading up to it, just to walk into the venue. I, did you ever get to see Burning? No, I haven't seen it yet. It's finally available to rent, but I haven't had time. It just became available like okay. this week, so I haven't had time yet. Not going to talk too much about it then. I'll just shout out the rain dance scene. You'll know it when you see it. Pretty great. And uh, I also had, speaking of like uh, horror movies that aren't actually horror movies. I had the party scene from eighth grade, which I mean, like, super uncomfortable, but really, really good at doing what it wants to do. And that's what I'll say about that. You know what I mean? Like, I would not want to watch it again, but, like, it accomplished what it set out to do in such a way that, like, I feel like it deserves a shout out. Yeah, that's a good one, too. And uh, that's about it. I I mean, we don't even really have to dub a winner. If you put a gun to my head and, like, made me pick a winner, I'd probably pick the widow scene. I I mean, you can say what you're—I don't even know—I'm not going to make you pick a favorite. To me, it's almost like picking a favorite child. But if you have one that you want to say, like, that's my scene, if I had to give an award to, you can do it. Um, um, I think I would pick that first reformed scene. But, you know, there's—I liked all of the ones that we talked about. I liked your choices, too. So, all good. So, I'm glad we were able to break that down. That was fun. Um— if anyone else has any uh, favorite scenes that they feel like were glaring omissions on our part, uh, please feel free to shout at me on Twitter or something about it. So, Hannah, thank you very much for being so generous with your time for to, to round out the year of movies in 2018. 
I hope to have you join me for some of 2019's best movies as well. Do you? Uh, before you sign off, do you have anything you want to plug? Twitter, Letterbox, anything like that? Um, yeah, my my Twitter is at h g c o u t u r e, and I think my Letterbox is. Hannah GC. I, it's slightly different from my Twitter. I never Whatever. think about Someone it. can like creep on my letterbox and people yeah, you follow can find you me. if you want to do that as well. But uh, thanks a lot, Hannah. And uh, stay tuned for the next category. All right. And welcome back. We're here with another one of our fake awards. We're talking about our favorite movies of the year that were under 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm happy to be joined by Daniel Lima because Daniel, I thought I could not think of anyone better to uh, talk about this subject with than you because you are uh, known for championing movies that the masses either, or maybe the masses like, but the critical masses don't like so much. And it's just been a thing that you've done in the couple of years that I've known you. So I thought you'd be the great, the best person to talk about this category with. So did you find plenty of uh, movies this year to uh, appreciate that were not critical darlings? I think I had a decent amount. Uh, I, I, preparing for this podcast, I looked over my list. I came out with, I think, 16 movies that I, you know, liked that ended up being below 60%. Some of them very surprising to me. Uh, I've got a selection here of my favorites of that bunch. Yeah, I made you cut it down. I'm like, I'm not talking about shitty movies for an hour. Uh, cause I, They're I, not I, shitty. I, They're just underappreciated. Yeah, because I, I mean, I, I only had two movies that I, that I could even find on my list. I, <laughs> I, was, I was boring. I did not go against the green too much this year. And so this is going to be more Daniel talking to me than uh, – I, 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 and I doubt either of mine are going to show up on his list. So, But Daniel's going to go in order of his from the best-reviewed of the worst-reviewed movies that he actually liked. So, yes. Uh, Daniel, where, where, what, is, what is the first movie you decided to talk about that maybe wasn't for everyone else but was for you? Just on the precipice, at the to start, we got The House That Jack Built from Lars von Trier. Yeah, and everyone kept like asking me, like, are you going to talk about that or are you going to talk about the one? And I, I, I held off on seeing it. So I'm going to ask you to talk about this in a uh, rather ambiguous way because I feel like it's the kind of thing I almost want to go into like knowing as little as possible. But is there, is there a way you can talk about like what, why this movie is really worth seeing? Without going too into much, too much into plot details, yeah. So I mean, there's honestly not too much of a plot to go into. <laughs> um, so in case you didn't know, it's about this you know serial killer Jack, who you know kills a bunch of women over the course of some decades. That's what the movie's about. That's basically it, and that's basically all you're getting. Uh, it's from Lars von Trier, so of course there are all these you know you know you know, ruminations on the human condition and violence and art and this and that. Uh, some might find that tedious, but, you know, for me, I actually found it actually kind of fascinating. Less the conversations themselves and more what they point to. This movie feels like not only a takedown of its main character, but also of Lars von Trier himself. I think that it is a commentary on how pretentious and, you know, overwrought that his movies tend to be, even if he doesn't and I think that it's – I'm like 95% sure that it's conscientious. Uh, and if it's not, that just makes it more fascinating to me. Uh, it's known it, – it was – you know, it's been called when it premiered at Cannes like, you know, one of the most violent, ugly movies of, of the year. Hmm. And I think it's that. But it's also, it's also pretty funny. And it's, you know, well-made. Matt Dillon I think is, a, you know, one of the best performances of the year. Really? It's certainly certainly – it, it, when it comes to movies about violence in our modern society, it certainly beats out You Were Never Really Here. 
Wow. Okay. That, well, I'm sure a lot of people that uh, a lot of our mutual friends would strongly disagree with that. So you're starting off with the, they do and they're wrong. You're starting off with a wrong. spicy take there. So uh, <laughs> what, what's the next one on your list? Next one we've talked about this one actually uh, at 58 percent around tomato. Surprisingly for me, the front runner. Ah. Okay. Yeah. That you, was the one really about the Gary it. Hart. Yeah, that was the one about the Gary Hart campaign in '88 that he famously lost after Sex Sandal came out. Uh, it goes into a lot of this cross section of you know this time where tabloid journalism is starting to begin, and we're starting to dive more into the personal lives of these public figures. Uh, it's a reflection of our time as much as it is of that time. It's honestly, I think, really, really fascinating. I think it's one of the best ensembles of the year. You were not a fan of Hugh Jackman's yeah. performance in the movie, I remember. Which is the thing but, I was like most excited about about the movie, ironically. Like, I, I, but yeah, because he plays this guy very, very cold and distant. Yeah. But as time has gone on, I have grown even more appreciative of it. I think that it's one of the top five performances of the year for an actor. Wow. Uh, yeah, I really, really dug it. Uh, it adds. This is a movie that doesn't offer too many hard answers, which I could, I think is kind of what threw people off. Uh, but I think that that nuance and exploring the intricacies of this situation and the scandal, I think that it's far more interesting than if they came hard on one side or the other. Yeah. Well, I, I will say that like, I, I ultimately gave it a thumbs up. Like, I mean, like you said, it, it, it wasn't too far under 60% on tomato meter and I still would have given it a thumbs up. I was just maybe like a little bit let down by what I was wanting to get from the, uh, f from that character. And I also <laughs> thought that like, like I, I, I guess I, 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 but I did appreciate like its depiction of the, like of the media of the time and just some of the challenges, uh, that they had, that, that they faced and with, with access and how it was kind of a different time in that regard. And they were having to come to terms with that. And I, I certainly appreciated that just knowing the kind of environment that like political reporters, uh, deal in today. Uh, and, and you guys did talk me off the ledge a little bit where I was just like very uh, – I was just very against the idea that like that would tank anyone's campaign given what we know about Trump. But I think you guys did kind of like made me think about that point in a different way. So uh, mm. de I definitely think it's it's worth checking out. It's just for some reason didn't really catch on at the box office. I think – I mean I think people were like I – I, I think it's just like kind of interesting to really sell people on like going to a movie like that in droves like right before the election. Like it almost feels like – Right, maybe, right. Yeah, there there's no audience for a political movie. There might have I think I think people might have almost had anxiety, and you're, they're almost like their their political movie is the news at that time of year. It might have almost been better to just <laughs> yeah, like, release at a different it. time. I think that's it. Now that it's so ubiquitous, politics is so ubiquitous yeah. in modern life that like yeah, people just kind of. But it's a shame. I'm not saying it can't. I'm not saying it can't work. I just maybe maybe it wasn't like the smartest thing to release it on election day. I'm not saying that the movie shouldn't have gotten made. I just I just yeah, I'm, I'm I got wondering you. if they could have marketed it differently or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, it was Ivan Reitman's. Ivan Reitman was had a great year because he had that and Tolly Jason which, People act. Chase. I'm sorry, Jason Reitman. Yes, it's a shame that he is next gonna just do a, another a fucking remake of Ghostbusters. Yeah, he especially when it seems like he has the clout to get way more interesting. Stuff oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What do you, what, what's next on your list? Next on my list, this was the first great movie of 2018, uh, um, sitting at 57 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm afraid of what you're gonna the, say here. The Commuter. Oh, okay, nah, that's solid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Liam Neeson's you know revenge movie. Uh, about him on a train uh, as, you know, another collaboration with John Collette Sarah. Uh, his last one was, you know, him getting revenge on a plane. Yeah. Uh, now he's on a train. And now this he's on a, a snowmobile or snowplow. And now he's on a snowmobile and he apparently hates black people. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> not going to get too much into that one. But um, yeah, no, the commuter was, you know, I think a surprisingly 
angry, politically charged movie. Uh, you know, it had it, it it had a lot of anger toward the one percent and the powerful who you know rip you know the means away from you know the common people. Uh, beyond that, it's just a it's just a good thriller. It's just fun to see Liam Neeson do his thing. The action is actually good as opposed to Taken. There's a wonderful little one-er fight scene that happens in it. Uh, I'm a little bit removed from it because now it's been over a year since I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, it's been forever. But, yeah, but you know, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to just sit through. What I'll say about The Commuter is that like, I, it was certainly a lot of fun, and I still gave it a thumbs up. I thought that it didn't sit in that moral gray area as long as it could have. Uh, there, there's the point at which he's uh, he thinks he could just get a lot of money. But he might have to do some shady stuff, and he, they've already set it up that he really does need money. He's in, he's in a bit of financial bind after um, losing his job, and uh, I would have liked to have seen him kind of try to figure out what he can get away with on the train to possibly get away with that money without like having to like violate his own moral compass too much. But it, but it very quickly jumps to his whole entire family like uh, being threatened and um, him being set up for murder, and like I didn't really want it to get to that point as quickly as I can. You wanted to see more of that, you know. What should I do? Yeah, and I mean, it's fine if that, that's what the bad guys ultimately turn to to get him to help them out when he's maybe not like pushing his moral compass as far as he could. But I almost wanted to see him grapple with that a little more. And instead, it quickly becomes obvious that he has to like go all in. I, I, and um, I thought the Patrick Wilson plot choice was a little obvious uh, too. Yeah, but yeah, uh, was, but, it, but yeah. like, it's but, still like it's still it was still definitely a fun movie nonetheless. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll watch Jean-Claude Sarah direct the soap commercial, man. Yeah, like are, are, you fan, are you a fan of The Shallows, too? Yeah, I like The Shallow was the one with uh, Blake Lively, was it? Yeah, The Shallows. Or no, was it The Shallow or The Shallows? Yeah, The Shallow. Shallow? The Shallow? Shallows? Whatever. It yeah. was great. It's the it's a better shark movie than Jaws. Go see it. Wow. <laughs> You're just going to drop a bomb like that and then make us move on. <laughs> What's the next movie? Next movie is something that we talked about in our top ten, my top ten list, Hellfest, sitting at 39%. Okay. Yeah, so if uh, just jump jump back and uh, listen to our top tens because Daniel gave a very good review of that that uh, made me more intrigued to see a slasher movie than I had in some time. But I'm not we're not going to mm. dwell on it too much here because of that. And what, what what's next on your list? Next on my list, sitting at you were jumping down now, fifteen percent. Oof, we've got. Blumhouse's Truth or Dare. Oh God. Okay, I, I almost went to see it and I just didn't get around to it. And I mean, obviously, and the, it's a shame, shame on you, sir. I mean, uh, you're not coming well, out. To well, well, my no, con- convince me on uh, why I need to fix my uh, mistake in not seeing it. See, this one's going to be a tough sell because oh, right. there's no element of this movie that I would consider good. <laughs> But the sum is greater than its parts. It's the uh, – in case you don't remember because this movie came and went pretty quick if I remember correctly. This was the one about a bunch of college kids who go on vacation. They play this game of truth or dare with some weird dude who like seems scared as hell and then he runs away. They get back and then suddenly they feel supernaturally compelled to play games of truth or dare (laughs) with this demon – you know who is you know possesses random people and makes their smile really wide uh so they'll say i dare you to stick that pen in your eye and then he has to you know it's it's goofy as hell and the movie for me comes across as a parody unintentional of not of Blumhouse horror movies. Uh, you've got the PG-13 horror movie. All these characters are <laughs> really horribly underwritten. Uh, they say all sorts of dumb but shit. You're, you're, a fa- you're a fan of Get Out, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Get Out is, you know, I think it's not a prototypical. Uh, you're talking uh, about a different kind of Blumhouse movie. 
Yeah, I'm talking about like, you know, their insidious movies or, you know, all right, is insidious them? No, it is. Sinister is the one that isn't. But yeah, it's, you know, you know, this take on paranormal horror movies that I think feels a little rote. The Nun, you know, it it feels rote. Uh, It's, you know, these movies, I, I love Blumhouse. I think that they've, they're one, I prefer Blumhouse to like A24 and the horror movies that they're releasing because these actually have a sense of fun to them. And I think that uh, this movie does a lot. (laughs) It's fairly fun to watch these beats come up and be so ridiculously overplayed that it ends up being funny. There's a scene where like they go to have this lady explain to them what's going on, but she's mute. So she has to write it down. So she writes it down and then she hands over the note and then they read aloud the note. And then they ask her a follow-up question, and then she has to write it down. And they hand it. It becomes it becomes comic. It becomes genuinely comic. Uh, and I mean, it has the greatest line of 2018 for me. Can't no one keep Ron Ron from a party? Okay, I'm totally sold now. No, I, I mean, I, no. You did, I think you did a better job of selling me on Hellfest, but I'm I will I will check this out if it shows up somewhere that's very easy to watch, like Netflix oh, or HBO Go. I'm me. not going to pay believe money for it. Me, I don't expect. Anyone else to agree, but you're all wrong. I see what's going on here. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Get drunk, see it with your friends, man. All right, and I think you have one more left. I've got one more left. What, what's this a, is a movie. What, what's the lowest of the lows that you? This found is a movie. I feeling. I can't believe that I came out of this one with a positive impression, and I think that as time goes on, in ten years' time, I'm going to look back and say this was the best movie of the 2010s. I'm not there yet. Oh my God. I'm not there yet. But the more I think about it, the more I just realize that I'm too simple minded to really understand the genius. I think I'm, 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 I'm just bursting with excitement to figure out what this is. Sitting at 10% on the tomato meter. (laughs) Holmes and Watson. Oh my God. You actually went to that? I I forgot. Oh yes. So I did. I think you, I I think you're, you're one of the 10, you're one of the 10 people that went to that. Yeah, like, I didn't expect to like this movie. I'm not a huge fan of that shtick. I've never seen a full, uh, what's it? What's this duo, uh, Will Ferrell and uh, Jason... J- John, John C. Riley. John C. Riley. I've never seen a full one of their movies. You've never seen Step uh, Brothers? you never seen Talladega Nights? No, I never saw either of those. Oh, my God. Um, I'm not a fan of, I'm not a big fan of Will Ferrell specifically. Like, I remember I started I don't, up I don't the think you're a big guys. Adam McKay fan, are you? I'm not a big – I don't think I'm a big Adam McKay fan, no. Yeah. I'm not a fan of – you know, the, nothing about this movie basically going in made me think that I was going to like it. Uh, but when the trailer came out, everyone had been like, this looks awful. And I saw it and I was like, you know, honestly, some of these jokes work. I like the little <laughs> selfie joke. I like the idea of taking, you know, this – you know, uh, uh, you know, famous – one of the most famous literary fictional characters of all time. And making him just a complete fucking doofus. <laughs> uh, something about that appeals to me as a child in my lizard brain. And going in to see it, I realized that it's go- they got so much more going on, man. This movie is an anti-joke. This movie is anti-humor distilled into 90 minutes. You, you're familiar with what anti-humor is. It's when there's a lead up to a joke that you never end up getting. It's a shaggy dog story, you know. Uh, and this movie is that uh yes these two are doofuses they do stupid things the comedy is lowest common denominator lowbrow but there's never a moment to me where i don't feel that that's intentional 
when I when we get two straight minutes of Will Ferrell just vomiting <laughs> into a can, we got Sherlock Holmes God. vomiting into a can, and John C. Raleigh then starts vomiting into a can, and it's it goes on forever. And clearly the joke is not vomiting is funny for me. Clearly the joke is you are sitting here watching these two vomit and you paid to see this movie. That is, I think, the ultimate joke. So it's kind it's of thing you ultimately had to tip your cap to them at some point. Yes. like, And that point was basically immediately. Some of these jokes actually are genuinely funny. I still think that the selfie joke works. I think that watching John C. Riley shoot at bees is genuinely funny on his – very dumb comic dominator level. But yeah, I think that this is a movie that, you know, actively, while not contemptuous of its audience, <laughs> clearly has enjoys having fun at their expense. Man, John C. Uh, Riley, he was all over the place last year. I mean, three really well received movies between Stan and Ollie, The Sisters Brothers, I didn't see that one, and Wreck It Ralph 2. And then he just goes and does this. Like, man. Funnily enough, I didn't see any of those movies. <laughs> But here he might he might deserve a supporting actor nom. I think maybe uh, Will Ferrell might deserve a best actor nom. It certainly I think deserves a screenplay nom. Jesus. Uh, yeah, I I really I, I there's it's it's an endurance test, but not in a way that is uh, it's not an endurance sense in the way that it's awful and you have to sit through it and suffer through it. It's an endurance test to see are you man enough? Are you are you are you strong enough? to understand what's going on here. I think that this movie is a litmus test to see your personal sense of worth. And I think that those who walked out of this movie thinking that it was bad, I think you're just (laughs) weak-willed. I think you're just too weak. You need to eat your Wheaties or something before you come in to see this one, man. Because this one takes a lot of strength. All right. Well, I get another one that, like, I... I, I mean, I'm even less interested to watch that than Truth or Dare. But I mean, again, I'm not paying any money for it. I'm not. So I, I would only the only way in which I would ever conceive of watching it is like if I was like trapped on a plane and it was like the one on there that I hadn't seen before. And at that point, like it seems like I'm missing out on part of it if I haven't made that financial investment. That I'm not going to have that same psychological realization that you had as you were sitting there watching them vomit. Now, God, it's like, okay, well, so I literally, okay, so at least I'd seen two of those six that you talked about. So I'm just going to quickly share a couple that I had on mine because I just, yeah, like go I said, ahead. I, go I was, ahead. I'm I was, curious. I was just way more with the consensus this year. And I actually, I don't, amongst our friends, I don't think this was very popular, but I, I really enjoyed Tag. Which is only fifty six percent on the tomato like meter. No, I, I mean, like tag. I don't tag have a lot to say. Like, it, it, I mean, it had the kind of lowbrow humor that can still get me to laugh as a twenty. I'm twenty eight now, but I was twenty seven when I saw it. I, I, I really, John Hamm can almost do no wrong for me when he goes and does a comedy. And uh, mm-hmm. Jeremy Renner is so weird in real life and just so eccentric that I just have even more respect for him, and can, he can make me forget about that in the context of a comedic performance. And he did that pretty well, and, and I, yeah. I I just laughed. The movie kind of tries to like sneak in yeah. some dramatic stuff at the end, which I don't really know if it totally works. But that doesn't. No, it doesn't really work that, because that, I think doesn't negate think the fact that, that I laughed a lot, though. What Tag I think proves, I think that one of our friends walking out of this said this said this about the movie was that it proves how important direction is in a comedy. Like, you know, you take Game Night, for example, which I think was similar in that it's a bunch of friends playing a game, you know, a bunch of adult friends playing a game. It's an R-rated comedy, if I'm if I remember correctly. It's R-rated. And, uh, you know, that one, I think, really, really works because it's a riff on David Fincher and it nails all these eccentricities. There's wonderful shot composition and this and that. And here, I think it just 
it lacks the polish necessary to make some of the dramatic stuff toward the end kind of work. Like, you know, you want this, it's trying to convey this sort of nostalgic feel for youth that, you know, a bunch of friends still playing a game of tag after 30 years. But, um, you know, I remember specifically there's this moment where they're driving through their old neighborhood and you get a shot of like, you know, one of these guys looking out the window, seeing a bunch of kids playing. And they've got what's it called? Uh, Back in the day by Ahmed from Ahmad playing in the background. Mm. And it's like this really nice, sweet moment reflecting on youth. And then suddenly the guy says, like, hey, that's like when we were playing as kids. And I was like, oh, come on. Moment <laughs> ruined. Like, come on. You got to have a little bit more restraint yeah. than that. Like, but it's still fun. It's still yeah. a fun movie. I, the, fun. I'll say the one thing that, like, as much as I like John Hamm and Jeremy Renner, one other thing that sets something apart from Game Night, sets something like Game Night apart from something like this, aside from the direction, is that it, I think Game Night has a couple of like transcendent supporting performances. One from oh, Jesse, yeah. one from Jesse Plemons. Like, there's nothing in this movie that is that specific mm. on that level. Kyle uh, Chandler too. Kyle, yeah, I loved Kyle yeah, Chandler. Kyle Chandler blowing out, and Rachel McAdams like really showing a side of herself oh, that we that we that we just haven't seen since Mean Girls. You know, like she yeah. she really goes for it too. And I mean, I, I I enjoyed all those guys in Tag, but like really, I, no one that like really blew me away and quite right. quite in those ways that they did in Game Night. But yeah, I I still just laughed a ton. Like I I I don't have a lot more. To, I can't really analyze it in great depth but like i just yeah. i i still it's went fun. for i just still went for a lot of that lowbrow humor the other thing which i think what might be an even more controversial pick on my part at coming in at 46 percent on the tomato meter is red sparrow and i, I like red sparrow. i kind of i kind of I, I couldn't remember what you thought of it and i i know a lot of our friends really didn't like it i think um or maybe just certain critics i don't know it was inevitably going to draw comparisons to atomic blonde just that it had to you know it had to do with like a, a european spy spy story um and i, I think i left it this i, I like the ending so much more than atomic blonde i wouldn't even go so far as to say that it was like a better movie than atomic blonde more just that like i thought atomic blonde i just wasn't as invested in Lorraine as a person she you, she kind of comes in all already fully formed and you don't really learn a ton about her and then at the end it gets very convoluted and but all the technical stuff in Atomic Bond is just great. It looks great. The action is amazing. Here, I don't know if it necessarily has those kind of things going for it, but I mean, in what should have felt like a very uh, ridiculous performance, having Jennifer Lawrence do a Russian accent didn't really feel as hokey as I expected it to. I enjoyed, I was invested in her character and I understood what her motivations were, and she had some, still had some really fun scenes with Joel Edgerton. And it, it, the plot machinations work in a way that I understood how it got to the point it did at the end, where like ultimately our hero is able to prevail. And I, and I really appreciated that. It wasn't like a simple plot, but I still was able to follow it, and it wasn't overly convoluted. And uh, in some of the stuff it did, they did with the a lot of what the spies had to do with regard to how they use sex to their advantage could have kind of come off crosses way more gratuitous than it actually did. And I thought it was actually tasteful and service the plot. Yeah, no, uh, I think I, you're right in that it's hard to watch that movie without thinking of Atomic Blonde. That was the case for me. And for me, I mean, it came out on top. I think that it is okay. a better movie than Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde has better elements, like you said. The action doesn't – I mean, it's amazing. The action yeah. is amazing. And that's 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 about it because I can't understand anything going on in that movie. It is a movie that is so overly complicated and convoluted that there's no way for me to – Get walk out of that movie theater thinking I like that movie, which you know when it's an action movie with great fight scenes, I mean that's a challenge from me, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So to, to, for me to walk out of that going eh, but with Red Sparrow, um, you know it's not a movie that I can think about. But I don't have a lot of thoughts on it. Yeah, now coming because you know it's, 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 it's it came out some a year ago. Yeah, was fine watching it. 
yeah, yeah. But like, you know, it it was fine. Like, you know, I liked Jennifer Lawrence's character. I liked watching her do her thing, which isn't quite the same as a uh, um, what's it called? Uh, Atomic Blonde, yeah. uh, where I just couldn't connect at all to Charlize Theron's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, I thought that, you know, Jennifer Lawrence does a good job. The plots, you know, it's com- it's a complicated plot, but I understood what was going on while I was seeing it, which is way more than I can say for Atomic Blonde. Uh, yeah, I walked out thinking, oh, yeah, that was better than Atomic Blonde. Yeah, so that that that's all I got, dude. I, I, I didn't really have, like, a lot of movies <laughs> that, I, that I, like... I, that I really championed that were just that low. I've, I, I've, I've, even though like I, I mean I, I go to the movies so much. I've been trying to force myself to like just go see some lower rated stuff. See if I find some hidden gems. And I can't really. I feel like I can't like hold myself out as someone that uh, whose opinion on movies is worth valuing. And thus asking people to watch listen to my podcast i feel like i can't credibly do that unless i like go see other stuff and not just the stuff oh, i think yeah. not just the stuff i think is going to be great i need to make that investment especially as long as i'm living like right across the street from a movie theater it would be irresponsible of me to do otherwise so i'm <laughs> I, i'm glad i can invest in my time in some of these movies and see what i end up liking uh despite the consensus and i thought you'd be a good person to talk about that with and you certainly came with some uh, pretty controversial takes so i appreciate you going all out <laughs> can i can i can i offer can i offer one more hot take Yes, go for it. Now, this was a movie that had a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's still certified fresh, but I just want to come here to tell you. No, certified is like eight. Action... This, is, this is fresh. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, it's still fresh. Yeah. But uh, I just want to be here to tell y'all that the best live-action superhero movie oh, since 2016 is Aquaman. Oh, I thought you were going to say Samson with your freaking Samson. Samson. Oh Black no, Panther Samson. Take. Samson was the Samson was the best superhero movie that come out the weekend that Black Panther did. God damn it! But Aquaman, I thought was you know really, really, really great. I think that it. I think I. I don't know. Understand how people could walk out of that and go that wasn't that great all right i'm not i i I, I could talk to you for another half an hour about this but i gotta go to something (laughs) more important which is watch the bachelor so uh oh wait watch the bachelor and not holmes and watson yeah the bachelor is like the bachelor is like my 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 weekly uh i don't even call it a guilty pleasure because i don't i'm not guilt i don't feel guilty about watching it but i would much (laughs) rather talk to to watch the bachelor than continue thinking about aquaman you can go listen to my (laughs) podcast on that that i did with my old co-host anthony who we, we shit on it. I'm sure Daniel has other takes, and you can go f- find him on Letterbox if you want to hear what those takes are. So that would be letterbox.com slash felonious funk. That's F E L O N I U S. Yeah, there you can go. You can go see some of his outrageous takes, like uh, The Shallows being better than Jaws or uh, yeah. Samson being better than Black Panther. If you want to go really just uh, get your blood boiling, go check out Daniel's Letterbox. So, Daniel, thank you for joining me. Hopefully, you'll uh, find a couple of movies in the teens to talk about next year as well. Already have. All right. Serenity. Great. Oh, Jesus. Thanks. <laughs> All right, now I'm joined by my friend Elijah Howard. We're now back to talking about a couple of real awards in uh, Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing. And let's start by talking about the editing Oscar nominees, and then um, and then we'll I'll let you throw out any other options out there that you think should have made the cut here. But the nominees are uh, Vice, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Black Klansman, and Green Book. Uh, I'm going to walk out on a limb and say you probably don't think Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book are uh, amongst the best edited films of the year. No, I I thought I, I thought Bohemian Rhapsody was at best at best competently edited, at worst very sloppy and I mean Green Book 
looked like it was assembled. And, and really, I don't, I really don't like insulting people's work because I understand now. I understand yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want to make you. I don't want to put you in a position to just uh, talk but, crap about anyone, since I know but, like, you're in the industry. But I mean, uh, I will say, it, Green Book looked like it was assembled on iMovie. Like it was assembled using a preset on iMovie. It looked terrible. Um, it, it felt and flowed like a very, uh, like like somebody had read a, read a, uh, an ebook on how to make. On how to make a, a, a prestige drama. Um, well, uh, then I, the, the, I guess the, what I would then want to ask you then is about Vice because, you know, I think at this point, we, at least between the big short and now this, like Adam McKay has developed a very distinct style. I mean, how, when when you go in and you see a movie like that, like that seems like it's it's obviously edited way differently from some of the other highly regarded movies this year. Uh, how do you even compare the editing of something like that to the, something like the, like The Favorite? Well, Hank Corwin, yeah, he's kind of the the editor for uh, for for Vice and for right. Big Short. He's kind of you know developed this style of like sloppy chic, like you know making things like slap cuts and just stuff that generally we would think like, wow, that doesn't really look right. Trying to make it look cool and make it uh, you know make make it into a joke, which I think is a lot of what Adam McKay has taken out of it, um, and I think that's kind of why it didn't work in Vice, um, you know, on second glance. I was kind of like, when I first saw Vice, I was like, hey, yeah, it's just sort of a big short light. But the problem was big short was filled with these characters that were whimsical and strange, and so that editing, um, I think, reflected that. You know, it, it, it really captured that notion. <laughs> Vice applied that same whimsical editing to a bunch of people who were psychotic, uh, and it really doesn't it, the joke doesn't really land on second viewing uh, it didn't really land on first viewing and it definitely doesn't land on second viewing well know you're a little uh, higher on the movie than some of our friends so i couldn't remember if you actually like how much of that had to do with the editing or not so that's why i wanted to ask you about that yeah i, I didn't i mean the editing was neither i didn't think it was a terrible film i you know it just the in the editing i felt like i i think and when we talk about some of the other films this year that i liked I will talk about a film, I, I know I'm going to mention it, about a film that I think does that gonzo style of editing a lot better than Vice did. Okay. Um, well, uh, what's, I guess we can just round out the nominees first, and I'll jump to your other the one, other ones you have thoughts on. Uh, the Favorite was your favorite movie of the year, so uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming you were pretty impressed with the editing in it. Yeah, and I mean, I know when we talked about it, um, I... I, I think I specifically mentioned the, the editor, Yorgos Mavropseridis, um, because, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, you know, the editing, it, the, the, the montage of the film was so tight and so precise, um, and yet there was this playfulness to it. There was, you know, the slow motion that was just thrown in there, which was probably a directorial choice. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that... The editor doesn't get to make the call to put the duck race in slow motion? Um, <laughs> you know, you never know. You never... Really, it's hard to say because that's the way that filmmaking works, and that's why editing is so important. You know, I think it's... I don't remember who said it. I Probably a bajillion people have said it. But, uh, you know, there's a famous quote that uh, a film is, is made twice. Once when it is shot and once when it's edited, hmm. um, and so that's why it's key having um, an editor that you know you that you jive with as a director, um, you know having that connection because uh, the editor is going to be, uh, you know, looking at all of this and making decisions about what the final film is going to look like. Um, and yeah, the director might come in and say, no, we're going to change that to something else. But uh, an editor will make choices, and you know, if the director likes it, the director is going to say, okay. Cool. Well, we'll keep that. 
Um, so I think the favorite, uh, you know, is a great example of that synergy between director and editor where it is such a, it is such a Yorgos Lanthimos film, but, uh, it wouldn't exist without, you know, Yorgos Mavrop Saturdays. Yeah, the other nominee in this category is uh, is Black Klansman, Barry Alexander Brown, who's Spike Lee's like longtime editor, going all the way back to do the right thing, I believe. Uh, I, I would say just knowing what I'm learning about editing and what you've kind of just explained here, but just about the way you can kind of cut in a conversation. Like, I think that kind of stuff is really important in Black Klansman because there are a lot of pretty um, important back and forths, whether it be just uh, some of the conversations I'm thinking about, where like Adam Driver is just processing a lot of his stuff on his face, or or what John. David Washington's doing when he's on the phone, and you're having you're having some really crazy phone conversations that he's having with David Duke, and you're having to just even go back and forth and kind of capture what's going through each of the each of their minds as those conversations are going on. And I, I, I guess it probably is a lot easier said than done to just to do something like that. As entertaining as we find it in the theater when we're watching these people have these crazy conversations, like we probably think they're as crazy as they are because the editor is doing a good job of showing us their reactions to each thing the other person's saying. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, Barry Alexander Brown is a great editor. Um, I'm not going to take that away from him. And I, uh, you know, if if the favorite wasn't nominated in that category, if there was something else in its place, Black Klansman would probably be my choice, um, you know, in in that category. Um, I thought it was a finely, you know, finely edited film. Um, uh, you know, it, it felt it, what I liked about, um, you know, the favorite mate, and I don't want to, you know, start, keep talking backwards <laughs> here, but what I liked about the favorite maybe over Black Klansman is that Black Klansman felt like an old Spike Lee film. Like it was just, you know, it's not a knock, you know, uh, you know, Spike Lee's style is great, but, um, it, it felt very, you know, I've seen that. Um, mm -hmm. whereas the favorite, even though it's, you know, techniques and theories that I've seen applied elsewhere to watch Yorgos, the, to, to watch the Yorgoses, <laughs> try their hands at it um right. was really uh was really cool and um you know different and so that that's what for me gave it the leg up on black Klansman within the category right you had a, you had a couple of films uh pretty high in your top 10 for the year that weren't nominated for best editing is one of those the ones you wanted to shout out uh there's three within my top 15 that i want uh, really actually two probably for editing um, there's two in my top 15 for, for editing that I want to, that yeah. I want to mention. Um, uh, I don't know if I should start from the back or the front, whatever you want to start with Go lower ahead. in the list, jump, jump um, in with whichever ones comes to mind first, you know, to, to connect the point I had mentioned, you know, the editing style of vice, um, and how I thought a film landed it better this year. That film is assassination nation, ah. uh, directed by Sam Levinson in his directorial debut, um, and I guess for those who are unfamiliar with it, Assassination Nation is a thriller comedy question mark. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we talked about it made Daniel's top 10. So we talked about it on the top 10 podcast, but it's 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 a hard movie to put in a box. I'll say that. Yeah, it's a very strange film. It's, you know, on it's, on it's basic level. It's just a reinterpretation of the Salem Witch Trials. Um but that, that's that's an extremely cursory and superficial uh, explanation of this film. And I think part of the reason why uh, this film is so hard to nail down is because of the editing. Um, Ron Patain did the editing for, for Assassination Nation. And if there has ever been a film for the YouTube era, it is Assassination Nation. It is oh, a, for sure. It is, it is like just loaded with like an unbelievable amount of strange – like postmodern techniques, like, you know, 
just uh you know incorporating like phone screen overlays and stuff to make stuff mm-hmm. appear like it's on people's phones split screen uh you know like meme style montages like sl- like slow motion mo- like segments like the, uh, there's just all kinds and of party stuff. scenes Part yeah, like the party scenes were shot very. Uh, I mean, they were shot strangely and edited even stranger, and I, it just works. I mean, the film, I think it works because the film is about social media. I think the film works because it's about young people and about you know the ways that we interact with each other in the world outside of us. And uh, it's a great a great film um, in terms of of editing and just the way that it you know presents itself in in this stylish but also gritty and kind of almost unfinished sort of way yeah as i said Uh when i talked about it with daniel i mean i think the last act maybe gets a little crazier than what is ideal for like a movie that i'm gonna end up loving i just i I typically maybe enjoy more grounded stories than what it ultimately turns into but i took a lot from it and i wasn't bothered at all by just how crazy some of this editing was where like you said it is cutting back to a lot of different images on computer screens or um different things that these characters are doing and like you said it's jumping around a lot very representative of what you would want a movie of the youtube area to be but i wasn't bothered by any of it i felt like it was all that stuff was done really well just how it and it really was very seamless and how it went from to all of these different images throughout and i guess that is a testament to pretty impressive editing um, yeah and i mean i think um you know if you want to talk about films that you know push the medium forward uh in terms of editing i think this that was one of them i do think however we had another film this year um that pushed the medium very far in a lot of different aspects and uh and and one of those was editing and that was madeline's madeline yeah um and uh, that was edited by uh, – well, it was edited by two people, but it was edited by – I'm going to say it was edited by Josephine Decker um, who directed it. Ah. And um, uh, you know, she edited it with Harrison Atkins, but uh, – and you know, I'm not trying to downplay Harrison Atkins. It's important <laughs> to the editing process. But um, you know, this is very clearly Josephine Decker's film. She wrote, directed, produced it. I don't, actually, I don't know if she produced it, but she – and she edited it as well. And – I mean, the experimental elements of this film, the way that they're interspersed, the way that it plays with sound, um, the way that that's, you know, mastered into the soundtrack, the way that, you know, we hear characters' internal monologues, um, we hear, you know, these the, the, the sound space and soundscape are so tightly and brilliantly connected to the visuals, um, you know, the film. And, and then just... You know, all of the stuff with the cutaways to, you know, when she is having these, you know, these memory jogs where we get pieces of her younger life, her relationship with her mother, uh, you know, or with Regina, as she calls her in the in this <laughs> in the in the in the film. It's just uh, it was a you know, I, I was sitting there taking notes. Basically, I was, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to steal all that. It, shit. Took, you like, to, it took you to school. It definitely did. I'm I I was very inspired. It's the, you know, it's a very for people in the field maybe maybe not for others, but for for me as an editor, that was a film where I was walking out like, all right, let's go. I'm getting to a computer right now. I'm going to go edit something. Like I'm I'm ready to cut. Yeah. Um so and I I liked the way that, you know, that it had that element to it and I liked the way that it incorporated, you know, the the story and the all the you know how the the history of of the people involved you know 
Miranda July and Molly Parker and Josephine Decker all have experiences with experimental art, with experimental theater and, uh, you know, performance, performance art and things like that. And so to get a movie that actually really tried to incorporate that was, uh, you know, it was stunning to see. Yeah. All right. Well, I I don't have a ton to add on any other movies myself. I'm uh, a bit of a novice in this, so that's why it's cool to have Elijah here to kind of talk about it with me. Uh, I, 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 I will say the one movie that I do think – uh, maybe could have deserved some love in this category. It was one of uh, my favorites of the year, and that was Widows, because uh, I think that Widows had a pretty uh, tall task in how it decided to tell its story and keep cutting back to previous timelines. And I think it, a lot of people, like I, as I mentioned in the Top 10 podcast, um, maybe rightfully so, thought that maybe uh, one, it was one flashback too many when it went to the, uh, when it showed what happened to Viola Davis and Liam Neeson's son. But at the same time, it does a pretty good job of developing the story while going back and forth between just the beginnings of that heist and then jumping back into the present timeline. And I think I, I feel like that was a very well-edited movie, and that was just one thing that I kind of wanted to shout out. Uh, other than that, I did not have a lot else to to add on top of the nominees. So I want to move on to cinematography. And two, two of the – maybe the uh, – two of the nominees were Roma and the Favorite, which Elijah and I have already talked about on a podcast before. <laughs> uh, and we, 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 I think we talked about – so we did talk about, I think, the cinematography, obviously, a lot in both of them because, one, for one, Alfonso Cuaron shot Roma, and he also edited it. It was a bit of a surprise that it got snubbed in editing uh, at the Oscars. But uh, And uh, we talked a lot about the different kind of things that The Favorite did with the, with respect to that. And, um, I mean, I guess part of that goes to what we were just talking about maybe with some of the things it might have done where it did even things like filling a duck race, but at the same time it did a lot of stuff with fish islands and things like that. Um, I don't know if you had any other kind of quick big picture thoughts you wanted to add on to the editing of those before we got to the other nominees but those are two that we've pretty much uh really broke down pretty thoroughly in our first podcast yeah i mean i don't i i um you know i i don't know how coming off of a year when roger deakins finally won his academy award how any anything could seem landmark after that <laughs> but i mean this is a stunning year for cinema like this is the only category where i'm like you know what it's a foot race i don't really care who wins like yeah. any, anybody could win this category and i'd be fine with it i mm -hmm. mean th we have three foreign language films nominated for best cinematography mm -hmm. um i don't know if that's ever happened before to have cold war never look away and roma nominated and i know that you know, that Roma, the cinematography was Alfonso Cuaron. I know that Never Look Away was Caleb Deschanel, who's a very famous cinematographer. Did, did you did you get to see Never Look Away yet? Um, I've not. I've seen I've seen basically a cinematography reel of it that was sent to some, you know, ASC members. Gotcha. Um, but uh, I've not actually seen the movie. I mean, I'm just talking about the, vi you know, from, yeah. from the visual perspective, what I know of it. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't know if I'm in a rush to see it. I don't really like Florian Henkel von Donner's Mark, the director. It's also uh, a three-hour movie, so you would need to like clear out a good – more than a three-hour movie. So you need to clear out a good chunk of a day if it was going to happen. But right. uh, it, I, mean, I know Caleb Deschanel is like a very decorated cinematographer uh, also and has multiple Oscar nominees uh, nominations already to his name. Uh, so uh, yeah. it, just a pretty stacked category in general. Uh, on top of that, but uh, I wanted to ask you a little more in depth though about about Cold War because uh, that I mean we, we talked a lot about just how um, 
on, on the podcast about Roma about how I thought I, I was pretty caught off guard by the fact that like this is a black and white movie that was uh, shot digitally and obviously with a lot of care with respect to how those shots were set up as it was modeled after Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Child at Home. But uh, a lot of people were pretty uh, surprised when Cold War kind of stormed the party on Oscar nomination morning and got a directing nomination but also cinematography. So uh, what struck you about just how uh, Cold War was filmed? Um, you know, I was coming off of Ida, which is another film that Lucas Shaw, the, the, uh, the cinematographer for Cold War, um, he also shot Ida. So there's a lot of visual similarity between the two films. Um, I really love the way that him and Pawlikowski come up with these very painterly images where, um, you know, you could really pick any frame from the movie and it's like, oh, yeah, that's a painting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's just the way that composition I mean, just them sitting in an apartment smoking a cigarette or something does feel uh, exactly. like there's more going on there than meets the eye. Exactly. And, you know, composition is more of a directorial choice. You know, the director is kind of looking at the at the well, at least in the case of Pablo Pablocasio, the director is looking at, you know, at, at a monitor and saying, OK, you know, you need to move a little bit here, here, here. But Lucas Zoll, I mean, he, he he's a he's a master of the craft, not just in his ability to pick the right, you know, camera and lens for a situation. But uh, a cinematographer's job is also to pick lighting. Mm -hmm. A cinematographer's job is to arrange things like, um, you know, uh, uh, light assets and light fixtures on the set and to understand how those are going to affect the final image. Um, uh, it's a cinematographer's job to create texture and depth uh, and to create things, um, you know, like, like, uh, you know, deep focus or shallow focus. And Cold War was a film that incorporated all of those elements. I mean, we have incredible texture and, and, and tooth to the film where uh, each scene had a, had some kind of element that you just felt like you could reach into the screen and touch, whether it was the smoke, you know, coming off of people's cigarettes or the, you know, sweat on somebody's forehead or, you know, the, the, you know, the way that the, 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 the people were all arranged and, you know, you know, blurred out in the background of the concert scenes and things like that. Yeah. I'm just like, as you're talking, I've been like scrolling back through the images that are on IMDb. And that was the one thing that stuck out to me. It's like, man, whatever images are like front and center, like really pop. If I, I, I can just kind of tell, and a lot of it is done with what they're doing in the in, in the background, and then they put these other images in the foreground, and it's like, man, it, it, it really they really accentuate their actors really impressively. Yeah, um, and you know the decision to shoot, um, you know, in you know shoot digital black and white, it's a it's a it's a tough thing to do in today's day and age. I think we've you know we've almost forgotten how to do it. So to have a film that. Uh, that does it not only, you know, that not only does it, but does it with this kind of skill was just, uh, excellent. And again, I mean, like, I honestly don't even know. I mean, I, I probably picked the favorite to win the category, but I would definitely not be upset if cold war won, like I, I, or Roma for that. I mean, really, like I said, anything. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I you, you kind of hinted earlier at being a, a little down on A Star is Born, or not even down, but just not as high in it as you are on Cold War when you made your comment about, uh, or, or that was more on a Top 10 podcast, we talked about a Cold War being the best movie about a pop star that came out that year. Do you think a cinematography nomination is at least well-deserved for A Star is Born? How did you feel oh, about oh, it Oh, I thought cinematography was one of the best parts of A Star is Born. Yeah. I, thought, I thought Matthew Liebatique did a phenomenal job. I thought, um, and, and, you know, he always does. I'm not, I, 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 that, that never shocks me um you know his work with darren aronofsky was you know is always fantastic you know that's who he spent most of his career with uh and uh, clearly bradley cooper chose him you know for that reason because um you know he really captured that uh you know that kind of grittiness that sort of um but you know the the movie looked a lot like black swan i mean just the way that you know light interacted with the subjects you uh you you know he needed bradley cooper needed a cinematographer who understood staginess who understood stage lighting who understood how to um you know uh get this sort of atmospheric almost dreamlike lighting but have it still look real that guy's had a weird few years. I mean, I, I just, I, I, I didn't know Matthew Liebatik. I, I, I guess I'd heard this earlier this year, but you know, his 2018 included another movie, and it's in addition <laughs> to a Star's Born. Do you know what that yeah. movie is? Venom. Venom. And yeah. uh, just in the year before that, though, it was kind of a similar thing. Where not that uh, Mother was uh, very highly critically regarded, but I mean, I think a lot of people. I don't think anyone had anything bad to say about the way it looked. But the other movie he had in 2017 was The Circle. So yeah. he has an interesting kind of like uh, – in the year before that, I mean I guess he had uh, – or no, I guess that was over two years. But in, that, that was just a very weird couple years he had there. But he just has such a – looks like a, such a diverse uh, filmography if you just keep going. I mean he, like you said, he works with Aronofsky a lot, but like he did Straight out of Compton but also did like Ruby Sparks and things like that. It's all over the place, but uh, kind of – it's probably the sign of a good cinematographer if he can do his thing in any kind of genre. And, uh, yeah, definitely. But uh, but yeah, were, were, was there was there anything outside of these uh, f- like five nominees that you wanted to recognize before we uh, sign off? Yeah, there was there's there's another two films um, that I, that I wanted to mention. Uh, the first is a film that uh, didn't make my top fifteen. It was in it for it was in it for a little for for one for one second mm-hmm. uh, several months ago, um, back when I hadn't you know when I was still in the process of getting to a lot of the you know the good movies for the year yeah um but it's a film that i want to mention uh, maybe specifically because this is a year where we've you know where the academy awards have focused on have focused on maybe i don't want to say old time things but you know there we have three black and white movies that are very clearly evoking a uh a, a feeling of something older of something a little bit more uh antique right so i wanted to talk about let the corpses tan i know what that is it's a it is a in it uh italian is that i guess uh or french i don't even know it's a multinational uh, um production Hmm. and it is a acid western Directed by uh, Helene Catet and Bruno Forzani, who have kind of made a career for themselves making these, uh, like making modern giallo films, like uh, you know films styled like like old school Italian like horror and you know acid films. 
Um, and so Let the Corpses Tan, I thought, was, you know, in a year where we have all these films in black and white that are talking about decades gone by, to have a film that, like, so brilliantly evokes 19, the 1970s hmm. um, and just, you know, I don't know, you know, you could Google image search the movie and you'll, you'll just see, I mean, it's a, it's such a, like a, it's a very singular looking film by today's standards. I mean, everything is super saturated, you know, compared to the black and white stuff that we see winning. Mm -hmm. um, this movie is very saturated, very colorful, uh, very textured. Um, and it was just, uh, it, you know, uses a lot of like sunlight and natural light, uh, which I liked. Mm -hmm. Um, and it did, it wasn't afraid to, you know, kind of lean into some of the more, uh, imperfect elements of itself. Yeah. Um, like, you know, having a lot of silhouetted shots and stuff, um, because those were limitations and, and technical aspects of the films that it's trying to evoke. Um, uh, and so, it knew that as a film. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about this film like it's a person. Um, but, it, you know, the filmmakers knew that. Uh, and I like that they leaned into that, especially in the cinematography. True. And so, yeah, I can't I can't comment. That's one I didn't even know existed until you just talked about it. But I mean, if anyone wants to go see a interesting uh, mix of uh, a foreign film of, of mixed origin and that evokes some uh old stuff i mean elijah just gave you a good one to look at so what, yeah. what's the other one you wanted to shout out the other one i want to shout out is one that slid into my top 15 it was it was holding on to a place right there at the end and that's uh mandy ah okay. uh panos cosmatos i was told i would hate that movie even though like our friend my friend charlie went and saw it and he he kind of was like my guinea pig he's like yeah you wouldn't like it but it sounds pretty bonkers but i i definitely from what i understand had a very distinct look from what i've been told it's uh yeah it's very much a, a a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down kind of movie where it <laughs> makes it, it makes you wait for the for the real out there you know nuts Nick Cage you know going ham kind of stuff like it takes it takes a little bit to warm up but um Mike like Benjamin Loeb did the cinematography for this movie and it's it's just like brilliant like it's such a it's like it's beautiful and haunting and uh you know the decision to use these different grain structures you know digital grain structures you know which is a decision that's made after the fact after the movie shot but it's still very much a cinematography choice mm -hmm. um you know the, it just makes the film feel like it's moving even when it's not and it's got such the, like this writhing strange quality to it um, which is, of course, augmented by the fact that, like, 90% of the film is bathed in this, like, red and purple light. Hmm. Um, and it's just, uh, I, I mean, the the use of atmospheric lighting, you know, several were pumped full of fog and other volumetric materials. And then they were, you know, Benjamin Loeb was sitting there shooting floodlights through it, hmm. you know, to get this, uh, you know, just... Again, like every frame is just the strangest looking thing ever. <laughs> there was really, I mean, nothing else like it this year. Um, and the, the only other point of reference I have is as other Panos Cosmatos films uh, uh, that he did several years ago called uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow. And that's the only other film I can think of recently that even comes close in terms of, you know, just being so 
evocative and so colorful and strange yeah you know who before we sign off you know who else i wanted to give a shout out to before we uh mm. before we left before we left the this conversation that was mm. uh gary graver for the other side of the wind which we talked about i feel like that yeah. guy got that guy got put through the ringer uh, i learned that by oh, watching God. they'll love me when i'm dead just like <laughs> i was like man even if it like hadn't been a really interesting looking movie like that guy deserves a shout out from someone for everything that orson wells put him through and I mean, as we talked about when we talked about uh, the other side of the wind, I mean, as much as that movie is like kind of spoofing those other uh, those other European films at the time uh, with with the film within the film, like the, a lot of that stuff was like super fun to look at and very interesting. And I think uh, the cinematographer pro- probably does deserve some credit for that, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, or, or Gary Graver, unfortunately, uh, did not live to see. I mean, his incredible product, but. Yeah. You know, you can look at his at his background and you can see, you know, he, he did some strange films. He did, you know, some some B horror movies that were probably below his station. According to the documentary, he did a lot of porn under a different name, too. Right. Yeah, that was pretty common back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he count, he comes from a lineage um, uh, and of, of cinematography that was very much um, not afraid to do stuff, not afraid to take risks. Um and, you know, that maybe that, you know, you see that in his pornography work. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, he he did camera work for A Woman Under the Influence, which is a, a John Cassavetes film and kind of a landmark of of modern American indie cinema. Hmm. Um, and, it, it, you know, you can very you can very clearly see how I feel like that would inform, you know, the stuff that he did on the other side of the wind where, you know, you have to, you have to dumb down the cinematography. It wasn't an Orson Welles film. They weren't trying to make a, you know, they weren't trying to make Citizen Kane with these super depthy, you know, uh, complicated shots. They were trying to make it look rugged, um, mm-hmm. and, but to have it still look good. And mm-hmm. that takes quality. That takes a lot of talent to be able to make something look you know, to to look bad and good at the same time. Um, and I think The Other Side of the Wind is in a very interesting uh, examination of that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, I guess you said that you're, if we're going to name a winner, you said the favorite probably be your number one choice, but that you would be perfectly okay with Cold War or Roma winning that category too. So, I mean, you know, it, even it, a star it, is born, yeah, frankly. Yeah. I mean, it's just a very interesting that we ended up with such a loaded category in cinematography this year. So I'm glad that, I'm glad that you suggested to talk about these two and that we gave them a little bit of attention. And I appreciate you educating me because I mean, these are two that are hard for someone that's not a filmmaker by trade to really uh, break down a lot, but it's interesting for someone like me to hear you really give a lot of insight into what made all these films really special in that regard. Elijah, thank you for, taking the time to uh, break down those awards with us. Uh, Stay tuned for the next category. All right, welcome back. I am now joined by my friend Joe Morgan to talk about best original screenplay and the best actor race as well. Uh, Joe, we can start with uh, best actor and... uh, you know, none of these are from uh, movies we talked about this year, so I really don't know where you kind of fall on these. And you know, it looks like at this point, Robbie Malek's going to win the award. I don't, I don't. I, have you? Did you see Bohemian Rhapsody? I haven't yet. No. Oh, okay. So it's okay. I, I know, like you really like Vice, and it seems like there's still a chance like Christian Bale could upset him. And I, I, I hadn't actually talked to you about A Star Is Born either. You know, so the nominees here, I should just say before we just go by one by one, are Robbie Malek, Christian Bale. 
Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born, Viggo Mortensen for Green Book, and Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate, which is the one acting performance I have just not seen yet. Like It was in theaters for like one week, and I'm like, I do not need to go see this probably really depressing Vincent Van Gogh movie, and now I feel like I need to, and I'm going to have to somehow rectify it. But like out of those, out of the nominated ones that you've seen, like I don't even know what you thought about A Star Is Born. I'm assuming you saw that. Um, yeah, I did. I did. Um, so Roddy Cooper would probably be my f- personal pick out of all those. I just think it's like amazing that like he made that guy feel like a fully formed person, and like that voice, which could have been really ridiculous, wasn't. And that's like an accomplishment in and of itself. He is like amazing in that scene, really. Like he breaks down in rehab, but like he's pretty good throughout the whole entire thing. Um, so he'd be like my personal pick. Do you have like any thoughts on any of these guys individually? Because I, I mean, obviously, we did our top ten podcast. Vice was your number two, and I, we didn't talk that much about Christian Bale when we did that. But like, it's a pretty impressive like transformation that he gives. So I can't begrudge you if that's your top pick. But like, where are you at basically with these guys that we have to choose from right now? Yeah, if it were up to me, I'd give it to Bale. I just think he's so transformative and so great, and he really makes that movie work. Um, that fat suit, will, that fat suit should feel like so much of a trick, or it's not a fat suit. He gained the weight, but like all the yeah. makeup and all that should feel like kind of hokey, and it he doesn't. Yeah, um, I, I mean, he's just he's just wonderful in it, and I, I won't spend too much time on that because I actually do want to talk about Bradley Cooper. Yeah, um, and a star is born. Which are you about to shit on I, him? No, no, uh, actually, okay, okay, I was, okay. uh, <laughs> this uh, all all good things here. I was gonna say like I feel like a lot of the attitude around the Oscar nominations was everyone was so upset that uh, Bradley Cooper wasn't nominated for Best Director, or at least there was a contention of people who were upset that he mm-hmm. got Which I mean, you know, I mean, I think that I think the movie's well directed. I think the best thing he did in that movie was the performance, though. Like I think. Mm-hmm. He just does such a good job of making Jackson Maine very believable. And it's the kind of role, you know, like I wasn't some of Bradley Cooper's recent Oscar nominations. Like uh, I wasn't too crazy about American Sniper or uh, or his his uh, performance in American Hustle. Oh, I like this performance in American Hustle. I, I, I can understand why people don't like it as a movie. But like I actually like when I went back and watched it, I was like, man, that guy feels like a it, it feels like he created like a really believable kind of person in that. But that's interesting. And this is kind of like. Really, oh, this would probably be my favorite of his now too. But I mean, I just differed on that one from you. Yeah, like aside from Rocket Raccoon, I think like this is my favorite Bradley Cooper. (laughs) I I mean, he does just a really good job of like you know. I mean, it'd be very easy to be like, oh, like that's Bradley Cooper like doing a Kenny Chesney impression or something. You know what I mean? But like, Mm -hmm. um, Kenny Chesney's a bad example. I just I don't know country music. (laughs) Um, No, I just I think he does a terrific job, and like uh, the character just goes so many places. They're just awful you know and there's easily moments where it could have felt hokey or you know kind of cheesy or dumb and i i don't get that from any of it and yeah i just think he's great and if he won like i wouldn't be upset about it so yeah um, we yeah talked so about, shout talk, out bradley cooper but yeah i want we, talk, we talked about john david washington a little bit on our top 10 podcast because you had black Klansman pretty high uh and he got he got he got he kind of got the shaft out of here. A lot of people were upset about Ethan Hawke for First Reformed. Who I also probably would have personally preferred preferred to uh, Viggo Mortensen. I'll say on Rami Malek before we just throw out other options. Like I totally get most of the um, most of the misgivings that people have about best act about Bohemian Rhapsody as a movie. It has a lot of flaws, but and some people are straight up just like mad about his performance. And I actually really like this performance. And like it's it, part of it's because he feels so different from what he else he's done. Like he's such a different character on Mr. Robot. But like I, I totally like, I I totally bought him as Freddie Mercury, and he he didn't sing. And I I can I can't blame someone that doesn't think that thinks that should be part of a performance when you're playing a musician. But I think he captured the essence of Freddie Mercury pretty well, and it was very impressively 
physical performance. Uh, that being said, are there any snubs that like you were hoping would get nominated here that didn't other than John David Washington? Yeah, John David Washington's the big one for me. Yeah, other than this, I lead performances by males this year. Um, nothing really springs to mind immediately. Yeah, it wasn't um, the deepest performance as is other years sometimes. There are some years where you could like put together a five of people that didn't make it that you'd feel just as good about, and I don't think this is one of those years necessarily. You know, A lot of people yeah. were like really high on uh, You Were Never Really Here in Joaquin Phoenix that – it's a movie that I've talked about not being able to totally connect to yet, but more maybe because I was just like had like a really bad headache when I saw it. So who knows? Maybe that would have left more of an impression on me. Uh, ben Foster for Leave No Trace. Like I don't, I don't know if you saw Leave No Trace. Um, it's on uh, it's on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend it, or maybe Hulu. I'm not sure, but like it's a very good performance. Uh, but like that movie didn't get quite the awards traction everyone was hoping it would, at least for the purposes of Oscars. Uh, uh, Lucas Hedges and Boy Race. I really like that movie. Or no, no, sorry. I was thinking about Lucas Hedges and Ben is Back. Like, he had a big year with a lot of different things. I actually liked him better in Ben is Back than Boy Erased, but, like, it wasn't like, oh, my God, that should be in the five, you know? Just really not as deep, you know? Um, did, did you, uh, Vigo Mortensen for Green Book, you said you saw it yesterday, and I think we, we talked a little bit off air about it, and, like, I think we might have agreed about what some of the drawbacks were, but we both, like, also enjoyed parts of it. Like, did you have a strong impression about Vigo's performance? Um, I mean, yeah, I thought Vigo was good. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing about it felt really... Uh, transcendent to me or anything no i mean it was playing he was playing an italian dude you know yeah yeah i mean uh he was funny and um that's that's about it so <laughs> yeah that's yeah. my thoughts um yeah it sounds like sh- so if you had a personal winner it'd probably be bale if me cooper but it sounds like you wouldn't be upset if it was cooper but it's kind of a moot point to talk about who he thinks gonna win anyway because at this point rami malik's basically won almost everything so yeah for sure i mean it'd be a nice surprise if someone uh, else won but yeah. yeah. Oh well. Well, I mean, that's best actor. Definitely not the most compelling of the acting categories for sure. I think like best supporting actress is like a way more loaded one, and um, best supporting actor too. I mean, pro- might might even be like the least compelling. And so there were uh, like a bunch of lead actress like nominations that like people were like. Um, I mean, people think like it's kind of Glenn Close to win, but like between Glenn Close and you know, Lady Gaga and Olivia Coleman for the favorite. Like, I mean, and and then also like Alicia Aparicio for Roma and Melissa McCarthy and. And plus a handful of others that could have easily been nominated. Like it's a definitely a better year for actress in my opinion, which always also isn't the case. I mean, a lot of times it's like kind of talked about. Like a lot of times there's a bunch of best actress nominees that like are from movies not nominated for best picture, or and that's not not really the case this year. Like Glenn Close isn't in one of those, but like Lady Gaga was in a best picture nominee, so was Yulitza Aparicio, Olivia Coleman. I don't know. Like I, I just think it was a strong year for actresses, and it's just kind of funny we happen to talk about actor and like. I hadn't really thought of it in the big picture yet, so I kind of pulled up a list before we talked about it, and it what just wasn't the strongest year as it has been in recent years. But um, yeah, whatever, it, it happens. Um, let's, let's let's talk quickly about uh, original screenplay too, Joe. Um, it, it's it's a category that also kind of lends itself to like some like potential like surprise nominees or different things because you could have something interesting and unique and that might not get a lot of other nominations like kind of jump in there or you know either screenplay can kind of have that thing because i think last year that thing was like the disaster artist you know something along those lines and some people thought that might be eighth grade which i knew was high in your top of the year list but it kind of got the shaft at the last second in favor of like first reformed and green book which people were kind of questioning whether or not they would get in the other nominees are the favorite roma green book or the, and uh, Vice and First Reform. So those are the five. I think Bo Burnham was kind of the one on the outside looking in. Out of those that are nominated, I think the favorite 
is the favorite, and I know you haven't seen the favorite yet, but do you have, did you have any other thoughts on like Roma, Green Book, Vice, First Reformed, and how those fit into that race? Uh, yeah, I mean, if I had to pick who I'm rooting for, I think this would go the same way as a different best actor. I just think Vice is just such an inventive, uh, you know, movie and you know it it's really is adam mckay's baby from like the script to the screen you know like in terms of like how he visualized telling the story and how he uh really you know put forth the this take on dick cheney and just the creative things he had to do and just generating what was you know on the page you know like all that comes from somewhere you know obviously so um when he sat down in the room he's like what's this gonna look like so, uh, yeah, Vice is my definite favorite. Um, yeah, you know, my one thing about Vice when I like when I did the podcast and I talked about it was that I just thought that like I maybe could have gotten a little more in his head about like why he believed those specific policies were best. Like, it's a nice scene where Rumsfeld laughs at him when he's like, "What do we stand for?" Like, I yeah. totally get the sentiment behind that scene, but at the same time, like Republicans uh, do stand for like a lot of things that like aren't the best policies, you know, like pretty much everything they show him trying to push policy for later in the movie on top of like other things like just general civil rights and gun control and a lot of like positions that I disagree with. And it's like, it would have been interesting to like know how he was, um, how he came to really believe all that stuff was worth going to all the trouble to advocate for and, uh, relinquish that really happy private sector life. And he could have been living, making millions, but at the same time, I do think it did a better job of being more than just your average like cradle to the grave biopic, you know, and, which is like kind of the worst kind of biopic at the same time. So I, I I do give it credit for that, and it certainly is funny and does fill in a lot of gaps with what maybe we didn't know because he was a private president and does probably about as good of a job as you can, even if you like you said you can't. I, it might be a little hypocritical of me to like criticize him for not getting inside of his head, uh, but at the same time they have that acknowledging the fact that like he is having to fill in a lot of blanks because Dick Cheney was so private. What about uh, what about Roma? Because I know you were sadly realized you accidentally left it off your top ten list, and there's a lot of things that were accomplished with Roma. And so I, I don't know if the script was one of the things you connected with, because you can easily justify like Roma being in your top ten movies of the year just because like it's just it's just so well directed and shot, you know? Yeah, uh, the thing with Roma that I really enjoy was just is it was such a you know simplistic tale about you know life and really finding like you know, the drama and just, you know, the mundaneity, if, that, if that's a word, you know what I mean? Right, like it just right. very much, uh, captures what is, you know, everyday monotony, but in a way that, you know, is, it, it just captures like a slice of life and makes it, uh, I mean, you yeah, know, there's, it's, it's very universal. That's the word I've used yeah. to describe it. And my friend Elijah did, who I did the podcast with, like it, even though it's about something that happens in Mexico, like it does a great job of making some of those different experiences they're going through there feel, feel very universal in a way that someone like you or I could connect to, you know? Right. Cause the movie's entirely in Spanish. It takes place in a foreign country. And that really never crossed my mind when I was watching it. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. You know, I was just like, Oh, it's the story of this woman who uh, is the nanny and housekeeper for this family. And, her dealing with her own problems, you know, and, um, yeah, there was never really that divide for me personally watching it. I was able just to connect with it right away. And I feel like that starts with making a character who's relatable on the page, you know, like, um, so yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I regret leaving it off my top 10 list. <laughs> yeah. We, but, we already <laughs> talked to Yeah. 
We talked a decent bit about eighth grade already and what it did well. So I'd imagine that would be like one snub you 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 as well as I would like to sh- shout out. But were there, were there any other things on there that you you were somewhere on the list of what could have gotten an, that would have been any original screenplays out there that you thought maybe could have gotten a little more love and got a little shafted on Oscar morning? Um, in terms of original snubs, um, I mean, yeah, eighth grade's definitely on the list there. In terms of other things I saw this year, I think. I think most of the other stuff I saw that I could really talk about would just be adapted because it's either a sequel or it's based on something else. So yeah, that's um, it's kind of a common thing with Hollywood with like a lot of the blockbusters that you and I both really probably like these days. You know, I mean, you're you're going to just end up in the adapted category because it's going to be based on you know pre-existing intellectual property. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like I, 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 I'm gonna. I, I, I'll be curious to see what you think about the favorite when it does come out because like I. It's like a very like sharp script, and it like has a lot going for it. And I'll be curious to see like how you think it stacks up because it, it's it's one of those that also probably re- even reward rewatches, um, and because it's just like a, a mile a minute and just different one liners and stuff like that. That's like really funny. So I mean, I think it is a pretty strong category because of that. And Roma at the top are like so strong, and but at the same time, like First Reformed was like, uh, which I've already talked about on a, at various points throughout these couple podcasts I'm doing, like it it's really challenging in how it like makes you think about what we're doing to our planet. And at the same time also like makes you think about religion in a different way. And all the actors really deliver the dialogue really well. So, I mean, I wasn't like as high on vice as you and definitely didn't think green book really should have been there for a whole host of problems. I would refer you back to my podcast on green book with my friends, Josh and Daniel to hear about, because I just don't have the time to go into those things right now. But I mean, it's also problematic that like we're honoring like the white writer that like talked that like was sending anti-Muslim tweets at Donald Trump like just a few years ago and no he's writing a story about race. It feels kind of weird we're giving him an Oscar nomination for this, but yeah. that 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 alone just makes it feel odd that this one made the cut here. But uh yeah, I don't know. Uh would have been really cool for Bo Burnham to get in and that's like the one glaring thing when I look at this category that I think about that was just we've already talked about it on your top 10, but like Man, like it's super impressive for him to like write a script that gets teenage girls that well when he's just a dude, you know. Um, and I and, and I wish that was one other thing we could have just like had right here. So, yeah, Joe, I I appreciate you talking about this with me and giving your your insights into these movies. And um, you know, maybe one day we'll be talking about one of your scripts in this category. So. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. Um, I do have one more thing about First Reform. Oh, um, I, I didn't know if you saw I, it. You didn't really. Talk yeah, about I, it. I did. I did. Um, I, I was happy for its inclusion here because, you know, as someone, you know, who, you know, grew up in a Christian family and everything like that, uh, it was very, um, it was very, uh, heartening to see at least like a perspective on Christianity that involved, uh, taking care of the environment. You know, it's something that, um, like an aunt and uncle of mine who are really passionate about, you know, being stewards of the earth, you know, in terms of, you know, Christianity and then. It's just something that I've always really, uh, always really uh, cling to, and in, um, in my own life. Well, so. that's interesting. I didn't know. Like, I mean, it obviously kind of interrogates people. The movie itself, like, I mean, like, it's some of the church leaders that like are maybe like advocating for some of these corporations that uh, don't treat the environment well. But at the same time, like, it's interesting to hear you say that because, like, I mean, I did not grow up in a Christian church, and that like you do know people that like kind of see uh, a duty where the one of those kind of characters that was just a member of the church but like working for like this company that like uh ethan hawk's pastor starts like um yeah. looking into like 
it kind of doesn't really see that at all. So it's interesting for you to hear that, like, this is something that maybe certain people, um, members of certain churches that have a perspective on the environment could connect to it in a different way, you know? So Yeah, I was just, I was glad to see voice given to that issue because yeah. that's, a, that's yeah. always something that's been important to me. Like, the movie itself, like, um, you know, there are things I liked about it, didn't like about it, but in, just in terms of giving voice to that specific thing through Ethan Hawke's character and um, Amanda Seyfried's husband at the beginning, I forget the name, but... Um, yeah, but yeah. I mean, that's an incredible scene that I've already talked about on the best scenes. So yeah, I mean, glad, I'm glad you spoke up there because I, I you, you hadn't mentioned it before. So I was just kind of like ta- I was just talking over you. Didn't realize you had seen it. So really interesting <laughs> to hear you, you had that perspective on that. But uh, Joe, thank you for doing this, and uh, thank you for really helping me kind of capture the year in movies in 2018 on the podcast that you've done. And I'm hoping we'll have you back here in 2019 for something subsequent to the Lego Movie. So yeah, anytime. All right, guys, stay tuned for our next award. <laughs> And now we're back to finish out the real awards. And the last two real awards on our list are uh, lead actress and best supporting actor. And I'm joined by Josh Brown to talk about these. Josh, we'll talk about lead actress first. Uh, The nominees are Glenn Close for The Wife, which you and most of the rest of America haven't seen. So I don't know if we're going to talk about her too much. Uh, Olivia Coleman for The Favorite. Uh, Lady Gaga for A Star is Born, Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Ulysia Aparicio for Roma. Uh, as you look at that, do you have a personal favorite out of the ones of those that you've seen? Gaga. This should be Gaga. It's insane that it's not Gaga's. Um, a Star was literally born in that movie. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Uh, so, no, I mean, it's obviously really impressive what you did. I mean, I, I people have heard me talk about how much I like that movie a lot by this point. It's it's more than just like taking off the makeup, you know. I mean, like for someone that really hadn't done a ton of acting, um, to really convincingly like turn into that character and really hold her own against someone like Bradley Cooper, who's like a a three time Oscar nominated actor going into this movie, is I mean, it's it's really impressive. And if it it, it was a big risk to cast her, I'd say because of her lack of experience, and it paid off. Yeah, and like also like you know there are some movements where she really does like you know she's doing really tough stuff like that scene. In- up like she's a very personal performance too. like this is you know this is sort of it's, it's sort of drawn from her life yeah 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 and so you know a lot of this character has a lot of her in there already so but like you know her personality is coming across on screen and she has some tough things to do like that bathroom scene and then also that final number it, it, it's moving it's moving um and, and i like her interactions with her dad but played by um uh andrew dice clay it's it just i think this it, to me like she and uh, bradley cooper should like win their category like hands down given who they're nominated against like it, it shouldn't even be a conversation the fact that like on oscar night most likely both of them are gonna lose it's insane it's insane yeah do you have a did you have any other uh big takeaways uh from what did you think of uh, Melissa McCarthy? Because that's a movie I didn't talk about on this podcast, so I'm curious what you thought of her as a or her performance. So I was a huge fan of Diary of a Teenage Girl, um, yeah. and honestly, I feel like so the I think the Mariel Heller movie, like all the nominations that uh, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me got, I think should have went to uh, can, uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Huh. Uh, um, now Melissa Kibbutz-Harfi, she's good in it. It is it, a good performance. I'm not gonna deny it. Um, it's just like, I, I've seen low key uh, 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 Melissa McCarthy before, so it's not like I'm surprised that she could go with. Him. I wish she. I wish she would do it a little more instead of making those stupid movies with her husband. Yeah. Oh no. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Like this is far preferable than like the 
Adam Sandler slash Chris Farley movies that she's been making. And the, yeah, like like a hundred percent. And the, you know she has, and she's probably the most unlikable character out of the ones nominated. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen the wife, but um, but like out of like the four I have seen, like you know she's playing an unlikable character, but yet you're sympathetic towards her, and and she's a real human in that movie. So she's she's good in it. Um, and all honestly, can can I talk about the people like? Like one person, I think is missing from this. The two people, I think, are missing. From yeah, this. that's what I was gonna do. Did you have any like go tos there and any snubs that you were pretty particularly upset about? Regina Hall for support the girl should be there. That was gonna be one of my two. Yeah, uh, Rachel McAdams should be there for game night. Well, no, the, uh, the, the wrong category, or maybe she, would she be lead? I don't know. I think she, well, if Olivia Coleman is the is in lead, like that, like okay, that's BS. That's category fraud right there. Because yeah. that's your favorite. Emma Stone is the only one that sort of is the lead of that film. And Olivia Coleman right. and Rachel Vice are supporting. And to be honest, like, like the thing is, like, I've seen that type of performance before. Like, I, like, I don't think Rachel Weisz should even be in the conversation. And Olivia Coleman, like, I think Emma Stone is the best out of the three. And then it's Olivia Coleman. But like, I'm not like, I'm not. I think I could put like several other actresses this year above them. Um, what do you, you like about Regina Hall? Regina Hall, like she's like the thing with Regina Hall, like you know, you're getting a slice of this character's life, and you know, you don't see you know like lower classes like presented and like people who have to, you know, she conveys the stresses of being a manager, something that like a manager of like a restaurant or whatever, which with, is without any like big blow up scenes. Yeah. Yeah, like it's a it's a very realistic depiction of it, and she has to do several different things all at once. Like she has to be sort of this caretaker to these women, but also she has to be someone who lays down the law um, and be a strong force against them when they're uh, not doing what's needed of them. And also, she has the stress of like a marriage and keeping her own job, and she conveys these working class struggles pretty realistically without any theatrics and this type of thing that like doesn't that doesn't really ever get rewarded yeah and did, um, did you say one more you wanted to recognize that was a snub i think helena howard from madeline's madeline right. i don't quite love it as much as a, the movie's good i would say the most because it's a very you know like you know she has to like it's a very internal performance but also a, you know she's pre- She's portraying this out-of-body experience that she's having with this character. And, you know, with a lot of other people, that's a difficult tightrope, and it could have gone off the rails very easily. And so that's a, and especially for a young performer her age to, you know, tackle the duality of this character. Yeah. The way she does, that that's insane. And, you know, so those are like my three that I would say, like, yeah, Regina Hall was one of my snubs. I wanted to throw in there, but the, I actually had, I actually had two others. I guess uh, um, one of them was Elsie uh, Fisher. I mean, I I really I mean I really liked Eighth Grade. It's come up a lot on um, the top ten podcast I did. I mean, that's uh, that's that's definitely not an easy role to like be playing a character that's like pretending to be confident, and when she actually isn't in all those video scenes, but also to have to convey the awkwardness that comes up so much in middle school and so much throughout that movie, but then have to play, like, some of the really, like, horrifying scenes, like the car scene or the um, or the party scene, like, with where she's having to convey a lot without saying a lot, and that's really impressive for, like, an actress that was, like, what, 14 when that movie was made. So, uh, I wanted to shout her out. And also, uh, Catherine Hahn for Private Life. I don't know if you saw Private oh. Life or not. On in private life, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, 
that like I mean a lot of a lot of it might be colored by just like what I know about her as an actress all the comedies I've seen her do so it maybe just blows me away even more when I'm reminded that she can like do stuff like that and I mean look the, just that first, especially that first half of the movie where it's just like her and Paul Giamatti and you're getting such a clear picture of like what they've been going through for years without really explicitly saying it even though they kind of make mention of the fact that it's been a th- it's been a it's been a process for them to try and conceive a child like just you can kind of see the wear and tear the process it has, has had on her face like it's a really good performance no Oh, that one's a great one. I'm glad you mentioned her. Her life, I think that movie deserved a lot more love than it probably got. Um, oh, no. uh, in terms yeah. of recognition, awards recognition, Paul Giamatti is also really good in that movie. Oh, right. And I also, I, I lied. I, I had one other, uh, Carrie Mulligan, but I already mentioned Wildlife in my top ten podcast. I mean, that character just has to go through like a whole entire transformation for that movie. I mean, she's just like your normal housewife in the beginning, and it turns into like something that's actually kind of bonkers, and it, she does it like very convincingly. So I. I probably actually preferred like those three performances to like most of the stuff that actually got nominated after besides Lady Gaga, and I yeah. I agree with you about Olivia Coleman being category fraud. And I mean I liked Yoichi Aparicio a lot. Like I wasn't upset when she got nominated, but I mean like, and it's pretty impressive that Koran was able to cast someone like that just out of the blue, and that had never acted before, and that she is as good as she was. But I uh, I think actually I would have been like really really thrilled with like the lineup if it, if it had just been like those three those three snubs I mentioned plus Lady Gaga and whoever else you want to throw in there. Um, See, I'm mad at Alicia because, like, she's a school teacher that got to be in an Alfonso Corial movie for a year. Uh, so, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just jealous. Well, maybe one day he'll, like, make a movie about, like, a suburban Orlando school teacher and then yeah. we'll see what happens. Then yeah. you'll get the call. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 can, I can swim. If you need me on that beat, <laughs> I can do it. Um, All right. And then, oh, another person, though, can we men give us a shout-out yeah. before the supporting actor? Yeah. Claire Foyt and Unsane. Um... Oh, yeah. Well, I, we didn't even mention her in First Man, and people thought she might get... Oh, no, that was a supporting performance. Unsane is lead, and yeah, she is She's great in Unsane. I, I have some issues with, like, the last act of Unsane, but, like, she is, like, incredible. Um, it's just, like, I, that's actually the, my first introduction to her, because I've not seen The Crown. Oh, well, she's great on The Crown, but, yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool that that was the first Claire Foy thing you've seen. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, though, you know, for all I know, she's an American actress. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah because it's that in first man um um but yeah supporting actor so yeah the nominees for supporting actor are marshall ali for green book richard e grant for can you ever forgive me adam driver for black klansman sam elliott for a star is born and sam rockwell for vice so all right so we all agree sam rockwell shouldn't be there i we, Uh, we very much agree that Okay, and then um, Mahershala Ali, he gave a phenomenal performance in Moonlight. That, that like, it, like he deserved. He gave the performance of the year in Moonlight. Um, yeah, it's kind of annoying because, like, one point I've heard made, like, with some Oscar pundits, is that like three-time Oscar nominee winners are like very rare. Just even with combinations of like lead and supporting. So it's kind of frustrating that, like, you, they might just not want to give him another award for a long time if he wins for Green Book. And it's like this shouldn't be, like, one of his wins if he's only going to have, like, two or three wins. Or something yeah, like no, no. Like, I don't get why he's the front runner in this race. Like, I don't understand it at all. Um, and also, another category for up. Like, he's co-lead of that movie. Right. Um, you know, it's fucked up that it's told from Viggo Mortensen's uh, perspective, well, that, but but you know that's, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it's a, yeah it doesn't mean it's a supporting performance. Yeah, um, and and then then the other one, uh, like to me, Sam Elliott is the one who should win this. Uh, Richard E. Grant would yes be my like see Richard like Adam Driver. I think he's really good in Black Clansman. I'm all on the Black Clansman train. 
it's just like of the supporting performances in that movie, I would have nominated Topher uh, Grace Duke. Um, and then uh, Richard E. Grant, I think he's pretty good. And uh, can you ever forgive me? But to me, like, like this goes to Sam Elliott. Like yeah. the scene with him and Bradley Cooper on Cooper's driveway, powerful, right. powerful. It wasn't you who I admired. I mean, it wasn't that who admired. It was you. Mm-hmm. And, it, he just dry, and then he goes back and he's crying. It's great. It's great. He's great in it. But the person that should be here, it's saying. I have, I have a lot of people that should be here, actually. I could make a better five with people not nominated than what we got. Yeah. yeah. The person who should win this, like who should win this award, is Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther. I would agree. I mean, just to like come out of nowhere and like give us the best performance from a marvel movie villain i mean it's a it's quite the flex yeah but yeah. literally and figuratively because he is totally jacked in that movie yeah <laughs> no it, it, it's an, it, it's insane like to me he's i'm not like i'm not as hot on black panther as a lot of people are like i like it yeah. but like he's the one who saved the movie for me because i think like the problem with the marvel marvel formula is like a lot of the movie comes pre-designed pre-packaged before a director gets on board like Marvel has already made the casting decisions on a movie, right? And so I think if Ryan Coogler had to, like, develop Black Panther from scratch, it would be Black Panther starring Michael B. Jordan. And I think that is his muse. And then when Black, when Michael B. Jordan comes on screen, it's like Ryan Coogler becomes a better director. And Killmonger is expressing what I think is Coogler's point of view in the film. And so, like... I think, like... I mean, it's way better, though, for Michael B. Jordan personally that he wasn't Black Panther, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. he's going to, like, this an, he gave an amazing performance that everyone's going to acknowledge should have been Oscar-nominated, and now he's not going to, like, be bogged down having to do, like, seven more Marvel movies, and he can go do other interesting things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, but, yeah, like, it's just, like, you know, and he gives so much pathos to a villain, and, you know, he's by far the best Marvel villain because of that. I mean, he made a, a line, like... Oh, I'm gonna take it off your hands. Like, be like way more menacing than like it should be. Like in that in that museum scene or something like that. You know? Oh yeah, he's frightening, but also he manages to make you sympathetic towards him. Like, when he well, yeah, because he has the, he, he's what he's saying is correct. He's just doing the typical compelling villain thing where he's like going about it in the totally wrong way. But that's the most compelling villains. You like have a point, and they're just like, and you see their point of view. I mean, he's even kind of funny, you know, in the like the hey auntie. Like, he can even, like, go into that gear for a second and make you laugh, even if he's, like, kind of terrifying and angry for most of the movie. It's, it's just such a well – it's just such a, like, a well-thought-out and um, compelling performance, and we're in agreement, I guess. Uh, did you have any other personal snubs? Um, well, like, not that, that many come to mind immediately, but maybe Jesse Plemons. Yeah, uh, that's one that would have never happened. Although, I mean, like, we've seen pretty ridiculous. This is one category where they can get weird, you know, Robert Downey Jr. for Tropic Thunder or something like that. Like, you can get a comedy, comedic performance in here. And that was one of my five. Like, I had this, I have this other list of five, and he's on it. I mean, it's like such a, it's so weird. It's like a, such a one note performance, but he's like, he plays that non, one note so well. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very eccentric character in, in, in a performance. Like, and the thing is, like, I realized I just like Jesse Plemons in almost everything. Um, Except for Vice. And so, yeah, like he when he comes on screen, like he 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 brings like a new layer to it, and it's just. But yeah, like the like, I, I guess we're in agreement though. Like, 
Michael B. Jordan should should have been in here and should have. I don't. Why is Sam Rock? Like why? <laughs> um, it's not that he's a bad Bush. It's just, it's just like, like it's just not. It's nothing that all that novel. Yeah, and, like she's barely da- like. So I mean, Bush, and I really like Richard E. Grant too, and I and I really like Adam Driver. I mean, I, I connected with that performance. Like I've said already on the on my awards podcast is or, or the top ten podcast is just like. As a as a, like a Jewish person, you know, like I I can relate to what that character is going through, so I really connected with it. But like, I, my, my top five, just to run them off, would probably be. I mean, well, actually, you would take one of these next five out for uh, Sam Elliott because he totally deserves to be there. But I had yeah. Jesse Plemons, Michael B. Jordan, uh, Stephen Yen for Burning. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, like I I, I don't want to dwell too much on it. People can go if they saw Burning, go listen to Ben and I's podcast on it because we talk about him a lot. He does that that. It's such an ambiguous performance that is so many things at once. It's really, really interesting. Uh, and then I have, and then ironically enough, my other two are uh, Daniel Kaluuya for Widows and Brian Tyree Henry for Appeal Street oh, Could Talk. Okay. I, I, I'm an, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot for not mentioning Daniel Kaluuya and Widows. So we, 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 we did that podcast together. But I mean, like, I mean, dude, he is like so menacing and like really, and he's in like four scenes, and it's like leaves such a big impression. One of the best scenes of the year is that rapping sequence. It's just that, that should be like like in an ideal world, like his Oscar clip is that rapping sequence. Yeah, t- terrifying, and yeah. Uh, even just but even just like the smaller moments where he's like kind of like trying to flirt with his eyes at uh, Colin Farrell's like assistant. I mean, yeah. he's like so like creepy and with doing so little, it's it's great. Yeah, because great because fa- he has great facial expressions. I think that's what people learn about um, Get Out, mm-hmm. and that like he can just act with. Yeah, his- my favorite parts of Get Out were like were like. Normally, where someone might say something, but it's like one. It, I mean, it's kind of a commentary on just how, unfortunately, African Americans kind of have to like maybe stay quiet because of the unfortunate repercussions they would have if they speak up when they see certain forms of racism. But at the same time, he's just acting in those moments so well. Like he's not not saying he's not not saying anything because he's saying a lot with his face and how he reacts to some of those moments and get out. And it's just, it's very different reactions. But he it's a it's a, a more silent performance in Widows, but it conveys so much. Um, yeah. And then uh, Brian Tyree Henry, I mean, like, that's obviously one scene in a Beale Street Could Talk, but, like, it's been a while since, like, the Academy's nominated someone for, like, a one-scene performance, and I feel like that's as deserving as anything just because, I mean, he just takes over the movie for 12 minutes and does a – just kills it. Uh, I don't know what I else to say. I by Brian – because Brian Tyree Henry is, like, sort of my MVP of the year. Right. And I re- like, you know, um, he's in, like, so many things. I, I think I've – I think I've mentioned it to you on, like, the podcast. Like, I feel yeah. like – He's the black Philip, black Philip Seymour Hoffman, and like, you haven't even seen Atlanta. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you need to fix that because, like, yeah, you'll have yeah, even more respect I, for him. I need to fix that, but yeah, like, I feel like you know he's like where Philip Seymour Hoffman was in the late '90s, just popping up or whatever, and then just we we haven't even seen like wait until he's like the lead of a movie. Yeah, I'm really curious to see. Like, I mean, I mean, the thing is, Philip Seymour, how many movies was Philip Seymour Hoffman the lead of? Philip Seymour Hoffman the lead of, like, not that many. Yeah. So I mean, like, it'd be curious to see if those roles are just as few and far between for Brian Tyree Henry. I hope they're not. I'm totally cool with him killing it in every single thing he does in a supporting role, as Philip Seymour Hoffman did. But if he gets a few lead roles, I'm curious to see what those look like. Because with Philip Seymour Hoffman, I mean, it was what uh, Capote and the Master, uh, debatably. Yeah, I mean, you could call that category fraud that he was supporting in that. But um, I mean, there's very few other things where he's like the dude. Uh, but yeah, and I guess. Uh, it was before the devil knows you're dead. I don't know if he would have been considered uh, supporting in that or not. But it, in doubt, in doubt. 
Uh, oh yeah, Dowdy's really. I mean, I think he he got nomination for that too in supporting. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, he, 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 that one again, like him being nominated supporting. At least I could see a case. Like it's like the master. I don't think it's too egregious. Like you know, um, it's a two hander or whatever. But it's yeah. not like you know, it's it, it's not like Olivia Coleman in like the favorite um, type of thing. Like it, like him, like when it came to like the, the roles he got nominated for, I think it was always sort of appropriate. Like I could see the case. Um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I think, I think, uh, Philip Bryan, Tyree Henry, like he has a great career ahead of him. Um, um, and so I, I can't see, I can't wait to see what he does. Yep. All right, man. Well, I think that pretty much, uh, wraps that one up. We really kind of covered that. I think we're in agreement on that category as far as, uh, we both feel like Michael B. Jordan's a true winner, but out of the options, uh, Sam Elliott's easily the best. Uh, unfortunately, it's gonna for some reason be Marshall Ali uh, for a final. He won the few walks this year too. He, he he. Oh, you mean he just said he won easily? You mean if he does? Yeah, like, like, yeah. on Oscar night, that's not gonna be surprising as him. Like everything else, like you know, I think like you know, like the best actor, it could be uh, Rami Malek, but he could easily be one maybe a surprise and best actor, best, uh, supporting actress, but. You know, all right. Yeah, no, I agree. But uh, we're we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, everyone, I appreciate anyone that's still listening at this point because I did this in like the most long-winded way possible. Uh, I'm experimenting it out. It's my first year doing this kind of awards year-end wrap-up. I'm gonna find a, a more condensed way to do it this year. But I'm glad I got to involve so many friends that were such big contributors to the podcast in the first throughout the first 50 or so episodes, and uh, really just kind of put the year in perspective. Uh, Josh, thank you very much. Uh, and everyone, uh, stay tuned for uh, our continuation of 2019 talk with uh, Josh and I's uh, podcast that will be coming out early next week about Happy Death Day to you and Alita Battle Angel. And hopefully Josh will join us for many more movies in 2019 that are more deserving of being mentioned in podcasts like the one you just listened to because uh, I don't know if we're getting that in those two movies, though. I think we both have pretty good things to say about Happy Death Day to you. So uh, check that out, and we'll see you next time.